You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since Everybody, welcome to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Sammy and Will are back together. We did it. Yeah. <laughs> we finally we finally managed to work the schedules out and get back together here. This so, took a minute. Yeah, it did. So I want to thank uh Brian the Flick Boxer and Jose, the wonderful Jose from Watch Get Plus for helping out the last couple weeks. Um and getting uh getting a couple shows out. Just uh timing was way it just got off. So, anyway, we got a couple of good shows out, and uh, I hope people enjoyed them. They seem to have, and uh, yeah. So now we're back, and we're going to talk about something we were going to talk about two episodes ago. Uh, we're going to talk about Steven Spielberg's artificial intelligence AI, artificial intelligence, via the uh, Stanley Kubrick dedication that um, it ended up uh, kind of curtailing and becoming that. So. Um, Will kind of hit me up about this one, and I was like, you know what? I've only ever seen it once. I'd be willing to talk about it because there's a lot of themes there and things. And uh, so we decided to throw it on here. We don't normally do the uh, the big blockbuster releases from the big blockbuster filmmakers, but every now and then it's fun because we watch those films just like everybody else, right? So, um, this is that's what we're doing. And yeah. <laughs> go ahead, Will. I was going to say, yeah, we can't we can't live in the art house all the time. No, right. And and it's a thing. Listen, as film lovers, and one of the things we always we've always said, we've had the odd person kind of push back and go, "You say you do midnight cinema?" <laughs> yes, we do. But I think we've yeah. kind of slowly and carefully woven in over the fifteen years a love of film across the spectrum. And that's not to say we're going to be reviewing Transformers. <laughs> And all this other stuff. Uh, we're not going to cover Blue Beetle next week. There's shows that do, and and that's where their wheelhouse is. But yeah. um, for us, if we feel there's some uh, artistic merit to it, and when you have Steven Spielberg, whether you like him or not, and I've, um, you know, I've I've, it's sort of well known how I've generally felt about him over the years. I've softened on it as I've gotten older, but 
Um, there's there's a time with Kubrick, and when you get um, two voices and, and two filmmakers who really loom large over the landscape of film, I certainly don't think there's anything um, wrong with us having a deeper dive on that, right? It gives us an opportunity to look at a film through very different eyes than we would have when we first saw it 22 years ago, which I think is, is an interesting, going to be an interesting exploration. Right. Well, I mean, for me, the show has always been about conversation. And yes. um, if the movies can generate conversation or if they can generate just um, <laughs> anything, just uh, just an interesting discussion, then they're worth talking about. But yeah, I mean, uh it's you know it's twenty two years ago. AI hit the scene, so it, it's been it's been out there for a while. People had reactions to it the first time around, and uh, we're, we'll discuss some of that, and we'll discuss some of the history of the film and all that kind of good stuff. So we'll get to that in a bit. Um, and let's be honest, everything's midnight cinema, depending on how much you drank before you got to midnight. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, Anywho, uh, okay, um, I got a little bit of feedback here from Walt. Walt's probably wondering why I haven't played this feedback. We sent it two weeks ago. Well, that's because we had two weeks of mistiming, and I tried to save the feedback for the original host uh, yes. to be on. Now, if we have a guest, I'll still play the feedback, but if I always had, you know, in case it's aimed towards Will or towards me in general, I try to save it for that, Walt, in case you're ever wondering why, so... All right, here we go. Let me uh, let me fire this up here. Hopefully, you'll be able to hear it. Gentlemen, enjoyed your review of the Boonwell film. Uh, looking forward to hearing about AI, although uh, I think by this time, I will have already heard your review. So there you go. Uh, no, I've not no, seen you haven't. that film in 20 years. Uh, I've been watching uh, Euro horror movies this year. Uh, recent watches include Strip Nude for Your Killer, so Sweet, So Dead, and Island of the Fishmen. Gentlemen, can you recommend one under the radar Euro horror film hmm. for someone who's seen a lot of these films already? Uh, okay, this or that. Let's see. Let's see. I'm trying to think. Jessica Tandy or a Tandy computer? No, no, no. <laughs> Angela Mao or Angela Lansbury? No, no, that won't work either. Uh, let's see. Recliner or Sofa? There you go. That's better. Ooh. A couple of Ooh, uh, gentlemen in my relative uh, age group can relate to this question. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Have a great week. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can relate to that question, yes. Um, uh, yeah, Walt, so we ended up timing it where you know your feedback came in on the AI episode. So there you go. Worked out. Uh, so you don't know our thoughts yet, and you're just getting ready to find them out. Um. Let's 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 tackle his first question. Uh, a Euro horror that a little underseen Euro horror film. Now, this seems like it would be an easy question to answer, uh, but of course, <laughs> I'm trying to run through my encyclopedic brain. <laughs> I got one for him. If if, if you want to want me to vamp while you pull one from the catalog. No, go ahead. I mean, uh, I'd I'd say go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so you think of one while I'll blather about this one. So I was talking about this one recently with, I want to say it might have been Rufus or someone or the guys we were at X-Fest. I'd only seen it this year for the first time. It'll definitely, it'll probably be my top 10 first-time watches, maybe top 20. Really loved it. 
it's it's a uh, it's a Spanish horror film. Juan Antonio Bardem, no less. It's the corruption of Chris Miller. Oh, we covered that. Yeah, this one. So then you can vouch for this one. This is a fantastic film. It's a little long, but it's fantastic. It's it's sort of like a you know. There's been some a fair number of Spanish jali. This kind of fits. It, it kind of does. It's kind of psychological horror. Um, Gene Seberg's in it. Uh, it's fantastic. I really love it. If you haven't seen it, well, I think you dig it. The opening's really weird and nightmarish with this Charlie Chaplin mask. Yeah, that was my favorite thing about it. I remember that. Oh, man. Uh, fantastic. Absolutely love it. Everyone needs to check it out. Yeah, um, I, I can't remember what you thought of it. I can't. I, I seem to remember. I'd have to go back and listen to the episode. I seem to remember that I had some problems with it, but I can't remember what you thought of it at the time. I, I think it might have been you and Todd on that episode, dude. Might have been. Might have been. Because I, I had never seen it before I saw it. Like maybe it was in the winter I saw it. I remember yeah, I, I have threw to it on. And, and uh, yeah, it must have been you and Todd. Or I could go back and listen to that one because I don't remember you guys talking about it. Yeah. I remember talking about the Charlie Chaplin thing because I remember liking that quite a bit. And yeah, I'm wishing yeah. that it would have maintained that creepiness. It would have been an all-timer. Yeah. You know, it, that opening, it's almost ironic well by intentionally probably so fairly silent i think uh, uh yeah yeah i believe it was i believe it was you know. and uh yeah it's just kind of slow and horrifying and weird and sexual and just yeah it's a good one it's a really good one it's um or even like uh oh i think we covered it didn't we um yeah, we did. Uh, the one with Jean Sorel. Um, oh, I always mix them up. Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll and what was it? Oh, it was Short Night of the Glass Dolls. Short Night of the Glass Dolls. Did we cover that recently? I feel like we did. No? No, I don't I don't know if we did. Well, maybe we did. Man, I, I can't keep track of anything anymore, man. So you, yeah. <laughs> oh, I hear you, buddy. There's, there's two for you. <laughs> uh, I'll go back and mention one that if you haven't watched that we covered that I think we were both kind of, it's not really, well, it's it's kind of a crime film, but it's also a horror film. And it was just like one of the sleaziest things we've ever done. And um, I think it snuck up on us how sleazy it was because it was directed by Ferdinando Baldi. But it was, uh, I don't know why it snuck up on us how sleazy it was because it was written by George Eastman. And uh, that is La Vergaza del Vaganileto, also known as, I believe, Horror Express. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um. I would definitely check that one out. That one is, <laughs> that one is, especially European <laughs> and especially Italian. Uh, 1980, written by George Eastman. If you can check it out, check it out. It it has some moments <laughs> that'll <laughs> that'll make you question what you're watching. For, uh, no Terror, or is it Terror Express? Terror, Terror Express or Horror? Yeah, it might be Terror Express. That might be it. Yeah. Horror Express is the Lee and Cushing one. Yeah, that's why I always get uh, confused. I think. Oh God, I would always, but yeah, there's, uh, there's butt licking in it. There's rape. <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff. It's very George Eastman esque without George it's Eastman. Very <laughs> George Eastman. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah. Three thugs commandeer a few cars on a moving train and spread terror among the passengers. So you can imagine how it goes from there written by one George Eastman. Eastman style. Yeah. Who did a few things with Baldy? I think uh, usually would act for him and stuff, but for whatever reason, he he uh, wrote that one. And uh, Eastman was known for that. He was known for being a screenwriter as well. Usually wrote for uh, what's his name, um, 
wasn't Matei. It was the other guy, wasn't it? Uh, D'Amato. D'Amato, yeah. 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 So maybe you've seen those, Walt. You seem to be a uh, traveling film fan of some of some merit. So you may have seen those, but uh, there's two or three there for you. And I'll have to go back and check on that. Yeah, the uh, corruption of Chris Miller or whatever. I, I just know we did it because I remember thinking, wow, this is a title I didn't expect and, and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, and that opening, that opening is something. Um, all right. So his this or that, recliner or sofa? What do you think? What do you think? This is, this wow. is not as easy as you would think in some ways. I guess it depends on the sofa, but not knowing the sofa, I'm going to say this. I would say in the past 20 years, I've really shifted into dad mode. As it's as we are recording this episode, I'm wearing my slippers. I'm all about the slippers. I get slippers every year for Christmas from uh, my family. And I live for the recliner. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't go, oh, boy, I can't wait to get home and sit on that sofa but i do (laughs) yearn to just hit that just hit that handle push that button boom up go the feet slippers are on life is good yeah yeah i'm a i'm a big recliner fan too uh i've sat on some really awesome couches no doubt sofas couches um they make some great ones and uh i'm not against that but the thing about the couch is I think this is the tricky part for me. The thing about the couch is it's it's very tempting to lay on the couch. And depending on yes. how the TV is situated in your setting area, because I don't want to say living room. Some people might have a theater room or everything else. You could not be facing the TV when you're sitting on the couch. Then you got the arm maybe of the couch in the way of the TV, depending on how high your TV is, yada, yada, yada. And then if you lay sideways, you know, you put your head down, you got one ear access to the film, which can sometimes, as I've gotten older, I don't know about you, but can be a bit of a nuisance because I can't hear as well as I used to. So I've got one ear against a pillow or a cushion of some sort and one ear listening to the film. And I'm like, wait a minute, I can't hear what he just said. Yeah. <laughs> I got to, you know, I got to roll my ear over so oh, I yeah. can hear the dialogue and stuff. So the couch can become a little bit of a logistical nightmare. But the recliner works no matter what. Now, you can lay sideways on a recliner. I know. I know people do that. You can do that. You know, if your back starts to get stiff or something, you just want to move around. But with the recliner, the great thing about the recliner is it's made for watching television. <laughs> yes, it is. It's created for that purpose. It's one of those great human inventions that's created because of another invention, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is the television. Because before that, I don't remember recliners being a very big deal. Um, I mean, most people had setting chairs or something else. Yeah. Once the recliner started hitting the scene, it really kind of catered to the television. And of course, you know, there's a reason why when you go to the big fancy theaters, they have reclining seats. And when you, uh, see home theaters, people make, they usually have recliners. Recliners are made for the television. So yeah, I have to go with recliner in this one as well. And I agree with you. Uh, I have good days and bad days at work like everybody. Sometimes the days are really rough, and uh, I think to myself, recliner, couch, it don't matter. I need a bed, but um, for the most part, it's recliner, and uh, that's where I go. Yes. I do not want to cross my legs when I come home. I do not want to set up. I do not want to sit in a hard chair at the kitchen table, unless I'm starving. Yes. I don't want to do anything like that. I want to sit in the recliner, and the older I get, the more that happens. I remember thinking as a kid, 
you know, my grandfather would work outside all day. He was retired by the time I was really paying attention to things and he would work outside and then he'd come in the house and he'd get in the recliner and he'd sit in the recliner and he'd pass out. And I remember thinking, I'll never be that way. Well, guess what? Uh, you're not as bright as you think you're going to be because <laughs> life can kick you in the butt sometimes. And, uh, sometimes you need that after work nap or that after activity nap or, or whatever. And the recliner is made for that. So yeah, absolutely. It is recliner all the way. Although I have sat on some really nice couches. Yeah. Sofas, oh, yeah. sofas. Some people say sofa. Sorry. <sighs> I love seats, day beds, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yep. Thanks, Walt, as always. And uh, thank you. Report back on those uh, European uh, horror films if uh, if you'd like, and let us know what you thought. If you've seen them before, that's fine. Uh, go back and look through our back catalog. We cover a lot of those. <laughs> uh, let us know, man. We'll try to find something a little deeper. Get that Giallo Alavenzia in there. Get that's that Jeff Blinn hard boiled egg action going. Uh, that, right. That's right, man. That's right. I'll forget about that one. Um, all right. That was actually one that, uh, came up when I went back and did the research of the ones we missed. That was one that came up. So, um, all right, Will, let's get into what we've been watching. I know we've uh, both been away for a little bit. You probably watch more than me. I've been busy and dealing with a bunch of stuff, but I'll let you kick it off here. What you got? So, yeah, I got a few things. Uh, let me find said things. Find said things, baby. Find them. Caress right. them. So I just want to tell you, I saw Talk To Me. I, I mentioned this last week, so I won't spend very much time at all. The Australian horror film. It's kind of oh, fuzzy, yeah, I think right? you talked about it with Brian, yeah. Yeah, yeah, really good one, man. I'd be curious to get uh, get your take. Not to say it's it's a world beater, but it's it's super fun. Super yeah, I'll fun. check it out some point. I remember Jose and Randy were repping for it pretty good. Yeah, yeah, so I've, let me see. Well, I, you know, I've only got like, I'm going to keep it light actually, man, because I think last week, did I talk about a bunch of stuff? I think I might have already talked about a bunch of stuff that, uh, um, well, I haven't watched much this month. Good Lord. Um, <laughs> it's a story of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. I'll talk about a few things. I watched Rooney, which was, uh, it's on prime documentary on Wayne Rooney. Uh, one time golden child of English soccer. Um, it's, oh, it's okay. fine. Oh, okay. I didn't know who it was at first. Rooney, it could have been anybody. It could have been Mickey uh, Rooney. could have been uh, Rooney Mara. could have been anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So this um, this was fine. Very standard stuff. I, I, I will say this. It's, you know, the, the scrutiny he lived under, um, the level of fame and heights he reached, and to look at some of the missteps, you know, years down the road. I think he's pretty honest about it. So kudos for him not completely glossing over everything, mm. right? Inevitably, you're going to have, for the most part, some limited access to people if you're going to talk about them and, and kind of cover the warts and all. But I think there's there's some honesty there that um, you don't always get from uh, subjects, right? Because yeah. just it hurts them to talk about it. So it was, it was fine, nothing special. But if you're a, into soccer or football everywhere else in the world but here, then... I think it's worth your time. Uh -huh. uh, I don't remember. Did I talk about the Darden Brothers film Tori and Lokita? Uh, I don't remember that. Uh, doesn't mean you did or didn't, but I don't remember it. 
I'll, I'll pretend I didn't, uh, or maybe I didn't. <clears throat> this is on Criterion. I just I felt like watching something Dardenne. Um, so I threw on uh, this Dardenne Brothers Jam on the Criterion channel. I like it that they've added this kind of new release section on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Straight to streaming. They're kind of doing what the yeah. other streaming models are. They're acquiring things and putting them on there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to watch this. I knew it would be fairly tight. You know what you're going to get with the Darden Brothers Jam. Um, this is just about two two uh, children who are uh, they're they're African immigrants. They're not brother and sister, but they came over together, and they are kind of uh, getting chewed up by the system. They're trying to keep their heads above water. Um. It of course is is Belgian, but it just looks at some of the, uh, the the cracks they fall through, the exploitation of of young people. Um, it's sad. It's it it does what they, those films always do. Uh, it's good. I don't think it's it's their finest hour, but the two young leads in it are quite good. Um, worth a watch, certainly. Uh, then uh, I'll tell you what I do love that Criterion is doing right now. I was sick on the couch last week, and uh, I just wanted some comfort food. And I saw, with it being you know the fiftieth anniversary of hip hop this year, they have like a hip hop uh, series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Early hip hop films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it covers. I want to say it's primarily eighties and nineties. Yeah, people- I think the first. Uh, I think the first hip hop film is nineteen eighty, maybe maybe seventy eight. Well, Wild Style, I think, is the first one. I think. Yeah, probably. So I had seen most of the stuff, if not all the stuff in there. But um, and they got deep cover on there too. So if you haven't seen deep cover in, in a minute, or you've just never seen it, check it out. You know it's fantastic. We covered it some time ago. Um, but I wanted to throw on Crush Groove, man. I hadn't seen Crush Groove in God, probably like thirty. I don't know, thirty plus years. And uh, I threw it on, and what a joy it was to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it just there's a certain earnestness. Like this is a very burgeoning um, time for hip hop. This is like eighty. I don't know. It was like eighty four, eighty five. LL Cool J is like seventeen years old. Sheila E. Run DMC's just coming up. Uh-huh. Fat Boys. Curtis Blow. You know he's established at this point. But yeah, yeah, they kind of like the early the early heavyweights. No, no fat yeah. boy, no fat boy joke intended there. Well, but yeah, no fat boy joke intended. But yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's right when uh, Sheila E's popping off with the Prince collaborations. Yeah, Ruff, and, Run DMC's in there as well, right? I'm pretty yeah, sure they're in there. Yeah, they're, they're pretty much. It's them and Sheila E that are featured like the most with yeah. Blair Underwood uh, and Rick Rubin. Rick yeah. Rubin playing himself. Blair Underwood playing Russell Simmons, basically. Yeah, they. Uh, I remember. I remember. I haven't seen that one in a long time, but I remember. Ooh, what do I remember? Uh, well, I remember Run DMC became so big, right, that they ended up getting their own film, right? Which we we never covered that, did we? I think we talked about covering it at some point. Was it tougher than leather or whatever like that? Uh, isn't is that like a isn't that like a concert film though? I can't remember. No, I can. I don't think so. I think it's a film film. But I, I'll, I'll I'll look while you're talking. Go ahead. Yeah, but anyway, the thing is, like, this looks at hip hop kind of in its infancy, where it really crossed over into the mainstream. And to see it in such an earnest way, like it almost feels like a well-intentioned, sweet version of something like "Help" by the Beatles, or uh-huh. or not "Help," but "Hard Day's Night," maybe. Yeah, yeah. just it, it's sort of self-aware, um, but 
and it's kind of meta, but it's really sort of earnest and sweet and just kind of a trip to see all these people so young and a culture that's become so woven into pop culture when it was just finding its footing um, in pop culture. Yeah. Tougher Than Leather is directed by Rick Rubin, and it's a cross between a black exploitation film and a spaghetti western, which is why I've talked about maybe covering it at some point. I don't know if I've ever seen it, to be yeah. honest with you. <laughs> yeah. I know the album, Tougher Than Leather. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you got racist bikers, blonde bimbos. You got, uh, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff going on. The Beastie Boys pop up in that one. Yeah, you bet they do. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't think. Uh, yeah, it's it's a weird movie. That it's, sounds. It's it's you can tell it's directed by Rick Rubin. Let's just put it that way. It's <laughs> it's it's a bit of a mess. I saw it hey, in a theater. Did you really? Mm-hmm. Wow, it's got Jenny Lumet in it. Who I always thought was really pretty. Uh, and you know what's funny? Have you heard, have you listened to Rick Rubin's podcast? I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a big Rick Rubin fan. Yeah, me too, man. It's pretty solid. He's it's it's interesting. He's got kind of a variety of people i mean obviously he leans a bit more into the the musicians or people he would have worked with but um it's a good show man i really dig it yeah he's uh you know very similar to me and that uh and i've always kind of identified with him a lot because his uh, music taste is is very very wide and very expansive and mine is as well so yeah yeah for sure man no, i've always dug rubin as well um what else do we got so william and i were home alone I'll just talk about two more. Okay. And I've been I've been circling, and we're not finished this one, full disclosure, but I want to mention it anyway. I've been circling the Godfather films with him mm-hmm. for some time. And so we were home alone, and we threw on Godfather 1. And I haven't seen it in, gosh, maybe about 15, 16 years, um, sort of front to back. And so, yeah, just throwing it on. I listen, I can't spend many, really much time talking about this or say anything that hasn't been said by much smarter people. But, um, yeah, it's incredible. I'm very excited to see where it falls for him once we're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we, we got to the part where um, uh, when Vito's been shot, he's in the hospital. Dominoes are starting to fall. Um but yeah, it's just incredible. I, and I want to watch this because then I want to go and watch that Paramount series with him about the making of it. Like it's like a. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know the one. I think it's got Miles Teller mm-hmm. playing, um, uh, what's his name? Bob Evans or Bob Evans, Don Evans. No, what's his name? Robert Evans, yeah. Be Bob, yeah, Bob Evans does right. I, 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 I confused myself for a minute thinking about the restaurant, Bob Evans. I know, I know. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But the last one I want to talk about. And I'll tell you what, this is like the find of the month for me. I'm so excited to talk about this one quickly with you. So <clears throat> William had gone upstairs to, you know, do teenage things, hang out with his friends and play video games. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I was like, no one else is home. I am throwing something on that is completely for me right now, which rarely happens. And I don't mind that. You know, you just we're trying to cultivate the love with our kids. But um it was a, it's a Czech film. It's called The Ear, directed by Carol uh, Kachnia. Uh-huh. This film blew me away, man. This is so good. It's sort of like if Bergman, if you, if it's sort of the love child of like a Bergman kind of sharp, uh, 
look at domestic failings mixed with Coppola as the conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this couple comes home from uh, like a government party and they find that their power's out in their house and they're squabbling and this and that. And, uh, and as the film goes on, they slowly start to wonder, is it intentional? It was a power put on their house. They start to question things they've done and retrace their steps. And it's, uh, it's really good, man. And it breaks the fourth wall. Like a lot of really, I think it's like 1970, it's black and white. Uh, the techniques used, like the camera work and some of the, the techniques really ahead of their time. And uh, this one just, I was like, wow, this film's amazing. So if it's on the Criterion channel, check it out. High, high recommend. Nice. Yeah, I've never seen that one. I'd never even heard of it. And then I read about it, the ear, and I was like, yep. Ucho. Ucho. Oh, man, it's really good. Yeah, yeah. I saw that you had watched it, so I, I knew it was coming up in some part of conversation between these two episodes. Yeah. So, And it was great. Like, I doubled it with Crush Groove. It was like, I, I don't think anyone's probably ever done that double ever. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they have. I don't know, but uh, I'm going to say the chances are low. But I mean, yeah, I mean anything's possible. That's the joys of uh, <laughs> the wonderful world of film, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I did some weird doubles too this weekend. So, um, all right, is that everything you're going to talk about this week? Yes, sir. Do tell. All right, uh, all right. So I think I don't think I talked about these with you. I know I didn't because I would have brought up this name and you'd remembered, but. I watched a documentary on Tubi, to be or not to be, um, The Acid King, uh, directed by Dan Jones and Jesse Pollock. This is about Ricky Casso. Uh, he was a Long Island teenager. This kind of kicks off in some ways the kind of the real kind of satanic panic of the '80s. Oh, uh, I saw you watch this. Yeah, and uh, you know, you know, he got arrested. He had an ACDC shirt on. You know, he listened to "quote unquote" heavy metal, which is always funny to say. Now, if you go back and listen to the "quote unquote" heavy metal people were listening to back then, it's really just rock and roll music. But yeah, because um, there was much heavier stuff out back then, but most people couldn't get access to it anyway. It's neither here nor there. The the movies it really captures a moment in time. And it, it's kind of amateurly done, but I, I liked it. But one of the great things about it is because uh, he made a short film about it. Is they interviewed Jim Van Beber in the film, and it's always good to see him. Uh, you know, he's a very much a personality, uh, somebody that I wish worked more and wish I did wish did more stuff because I think he has interesting takes on things, and uh, he has some interesting takes in this documentary uh, as he tends to do. Is he's chain smoking cigarettes and drinking Rolling Rock. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I got to be in the mood for a rolling rock. I really do. Um, have you ever had a rolling rock beer? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can say. Yeah. I mean, probably one of the more popular malt liquor be- beverages. Yeah. Maybe not as popular as the Colt 45, but uh, the rolling rock is out there. The green bottle. It's the only other. Well, it's not the only other beer, right? Because doesn't Molson, isn't that green? No. Um is there Moosehead something? Is. Moosehead, Moosehead. There you go. See, I get yeah. Moosehead and Molson confused. That's fair. Uh, I guess it's fair, but you know, got to get my Canadian beer straight, man. I get lose my Canadian uh, citizenship up there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like not knowing what a Tim Hortons is. Like and then people will be like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> get kicked out of the country. But this is a pretty good, uh, pretty good documentary, and uh, I recommend people check it out. Uh, it's long; it's probably the biggest problem. It's like two hours and twenty minutes. But I mean, if you're into the, um, 
material, it's pretty interesting. But really what it's about more than anything is just, you know, this, this kid had a bad life and he had, he was abused. His dad was uh, the high school football coach. He was very much a, uh, prototypical high school football coach. He was very much a, just a terrible person who didn't understand his son and, uh, was very shitty to him and just, uh, you know, raised him and basically kicked him out of the house before he even got out of high school. So, uh, really the kid had no shot. He had no shot. Um, and, uh, he just did some stupid stuff. He got, he got into drugs. He got into angel dust, which is something you don't really hear about anymore. That was really a big eighties thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, PCP angel dust, that kind of stuff. And that stuff can cause, you know, um, uh, you to see things that don't exist, all kinds of stuff. Problems. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it can cause brain damage and everything else. And this kid just, you know, he just didn't have a chance. And, uh, it's really a shame. Uh, the way it all panned out and all worked out. I don't want to give anything away, but there was a murder involved and, uh, it was just a real mess. And, uh, yeah, it, it just, it's a good example of how things can go wrong for somebody in so many different ways. Um, switched gears and went over to freebie, another free service. Don't know why I was doing this, but I just was. And uh, talk and watch the original Charvel gang. Now, this is about uh, electric guitars. This is definitely a very a niche uh, documentary here. Uh, Charvel made some of the original rock and roll guitars that people are familiar with. One of them being uh, Eddie Van Halen's uh, black and yellow guitar from Van Halen 2, I believe. This is really me going down the wormhole of music geekdom here. Um <laughs> And uh, they made some of the other guitars, and of course they were uh, eventually owned by, I can't remember his first name now, but Jackson, and Jackson guitars ended up becoming guitars. And and uh, these guitars, high-quality guitars, good price. Um, everybody loved them and everything else, and they still do. So it's a, it's a really interesting take on uh, talking about the history of a particular guitar brand. Um, I definitely recommend it. Some really cool rock and roll people in there. Uh, it's easy to find on Freebie. I won't talk about this one because I guess, well, I mean, I can touch base on this one and, uh, you can touch base. You might've been saving it for next week. I don't know. Uh, I know we're trying to work something out where we can talk to the individual that directed this film. Yes. Um, but I watched uh shark exploitation, which I know you watched as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, this is directed by Steven Scarlatta. Now, Steven Scarlatta, for those who have been around for a long time, uh, we used to not say his full name because he used to go by the back of Forrest Whitaker's neck. One of the or just neck for short. Yeah, one of the great online nicknames. Yes, and uh, longtime friend of the show, longtime uh, family member, really in a lot of ways. Yeah, sweet, of, sweet man. Yeah, one of our closest uh, friends, mm -hmm. and uh, you know he he was uh, helped produce the Jodorowsky's Dune. And, uh, and then, you know, he made, he loved, uh, shark movies and he made his own shark exploitation documentary called shark exploitation. And I wanted to watch it. So I, I fired it up and it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's really good. I, I'm, I really like the, uh, the fact that he worked the, uh, the psychological angles in there and the nautical angles in there, which I think okay. were, were really a smart touch instead of just kind of doing a clip documentary. You know what I mean? Well, it would have been easy. And he probably still could have made a very good, entertaining documentary just looking at shark exploitation uh, in the sense of the films uh, that came after Jaws, including Jaws. 
but the fact that he interviews marine biologists and really the title shark exploitation is very well it's it's very smart because it looks at the exploitation of sharks um through sort of this medium of film and some of the um a lot of the sort of urban myths and the 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 things that they got perpetuated as a result of of uh, shark films and, and some of the things that happened to sharks on film and it, it never gets heavy handed or self-righteous in any capacity, but it just, it's a very even handed and engaging and entertaining look at, uh, shark films and the phenomenon and the impact it had on sharks. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting and, and, uh, very well done. And we're trying to work out some things to talk to Steve about the film and everything else. So hopefully you guys will get a little bonus action on that. We just got to get the the uh, scheduling done and everything else. But we've, we've been in contact with him and stuff. And, and hopefully we will get a chance to talk to him. And he has a podcast, which I didn't even know he had. Um, because I'm so out of the loop on things. But Steve is also a guy that doesn't really like... You know, blast himself that much and things low he's doing. Dude. Yeah, he's a low key guy. So the greatest movie never made, I think, is the name of their podcast or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they kind of look at films that never got made, kind of tied to like the Jodorowsky Dune thing. And it's a pretty interesting podcast. I haven't even listened to an episode yet, but uh, I, I got a huge back catalog. I can definitely check out now. So, uh, so yeah, that's worth a watch. It's on Shutter. Um, uh, yes, so it is. check it out. Uh, one more thing I'll mention. I did finish off the the game trilogy. I did finish off the with the execution game, which I hadn't seen in forever. Uh-huh. I finished it off. Man, I gotta say, the you know I love the most dangerous game. We talked about that. I love the killing game. I do. I love both of those. But the execution game, it's interesting. That it's it feels totally different. It feels more like an art house film than the other two. And this time around watching it, it really, really kind of spoke to me more than the other two did. And I, I don't know if it's because of my love for camera technique and stuff like that. But man, what a what an interesting uh, crime film that is with some seriously long takes. There's a great moment in this one. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I have. Yeah, where they do these long takes at the end, and these films are kind of known for these, you know, kind of shootouts at the end of them. And this one has these long takes where there's all this choreography. And it's it's just amazingly well done. And, uh, man, I can't recommend this one enough. I'd say it's probably my favorite of the three, really. It probably goes this, then execution, then, uh, then, uh, most dangerous and then killing. And, but all of them are really good. It's a really great trilogy. And, uh, yeah, man, folks should definitely be buying that, that box set because that thing is, I mean, those are three great crime films back to back to back. So, Highly recommend those. This is uh, so. I think I feel like that one's kind of akin to uh, what is it? The, is it Female Prisoner Seven Hundred One Jailhouse Rock, or the one that feels very like <coughs> like it's it's much more experimental and art housey? Do you remember? Yeah, what I mean? a little bit more art housey. Camera yeah. is a little bit more. You know, there's some I don't know some unreliable narrator type stuff going on. There's just it's just much more of a, an experimental film or just something they wanted to try to do differently. And, mm-hmm. uh, it really comes off quite well and it really works because, uh, there's very little talking from uh, Matt Suna in the film, very little talking, which reminds me, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up, but I need to, because 
sometimes I miss these, and I apologize in advance. I'm, I'm looking for it right now. Hang on one second. We did get another email uh, from uh, Christoph, uh, Christopher uh, Romano, um, and I need to read this because I'd be wrong if I didn't bring this up because sometimes I miss the, the emails, but this has a couple of things. And so it says, Hey guys, Sammy, uh, nice pull bringing up the Onimusha series. Did you play the third one that had John Reno with a whip? That has to be someone's fetish. Um, I didn't play the third one with John Reno with the whip. No, but <laughs> I should have, uh, anyway, you brought up using the likenesses of actors for video game projects. I think that's at least that. I think that's at least less jarring than a silly CG Peter Cushing or something like that. We've seen some examples of video games that were based on past films, Scarface, The Godfather, The Thing. What films do you guys think would lend themselves well to a game format? I'm still I'd still like to see the Dirty Harry game resurrected. That would be a that would be a good video game. And yeah. uh this or that for you. Uh this is uh, I'm gonna save this this or that. I'll read it here in a minute. Let's see if we can answer anything. I know Will's less of a gamer than I am. Um but I think video games, if you look at video games, you got a whole generation of guys around my age or Will's age that grew up watching these movies, and a lot of these movies can make uh, for good video games. I mean, you know, Dirty Harry, obviously it takes the the impact of the story and changes it around because now you're interacting with it and stuff, and it's, you know, basically just being a character. But, um, you know, any action star would be... Uh, any action film really would lend itself very well to video game format because essentially all you're doing is running around shooting people. So that there isn't by this point, And I think it's probably because of the estate, but that there hasn't been a Charles Bronson type video game. No, <laughs> but at this point is kind of unbelievable to me because it lends itself so well. Uh, and it doesn't have to be death wish the game, although that would be amazing. Uh, obviously the first film doesn't really lend itself to video games, but, Part three Can does. You take the game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. Or ten after midnight, the game. Yeah. Whatever the you know, this you know Bronson and dildos, but the the um, the fact that there hasn't been his likeness hasn't been used is kind of unbelievable to me because uh, his likeness definitely lends itself to to video game world, right? Um, there's been some games like Red Dead Redemption and stuff like that that definitely feel like American and spaghetti westerns and. And things like that, but I, you know, using somebody's likeness is kind of a tricky thing. But I think in video games, I think it actually works better than bringing back CG. I think CG actors, I think that can be used interestingly. I, I just, you know, I worry that, you know, and maybe it's a false worry and stuff because I don't think the technology's there and stuff to really kind of give these. You know, Peter Cushing's gone, Christopher Lee's gone, give them, you know, beefy roles as these computer generated actors. Uh, maybe it's a false worry, but I don't know. I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think I mind seeing Peter Cushing in small bits in the Star Wars films or Star Wars shows or anything like that. But as much as some people do, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid where Hollywood might go with it. Uh, I know this has been a big concern for actors and, Actually, there's a strike going on right now, right? Because of uh, likenesses and digital stuff and streaming and all these things. And uh, there's concerns that folks are going to, you know, be, you know, paid less and less because they can give their likeness and they don't even have to do the work. So 
It is. Yeah, it's a slippery word. slope, man. It is. I'm glad they're striking. I hope they get everything they ask for. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I just don't think, uh, you know, I just don't think that, you know, there's 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 just a weird world going on right now, out there where, you know, things like second screen content and things like that. I mean, you got a whole generation that watches movies with their phone out, and uh, as much as that might bother some folks, um, I I don't care for it. When I mean, I don't get mad, but I do understand that. You know, the youth of today likes to have another screen while they're watching one screen. It's just a different type of uh, it's a different type of culture now. And, uh, you know, you can be upset about it. But, you know, I'm sure that, you know, when we were kids, people were like, oh, these kids, they watch this TV and this TV is bad for them and everything else. And I'm like, you know, I, I don't know about that. You know, I I never really know about that because I think that, you know. You can go back and the minute you start, when you get to that age where you go back in time and you start saying, well, I used to do this and I used to do that. That's when you really need to stop and pause and think about what you're saying. (laughs) Because, you know, I don't want my kids to go back in time and be like I was. I can tell you that. I don't want them having to deal with things I had to deal with. So um, anyway, uh, it's it's just a weird, it's a weird time in Hollywood. It's a weird time. You know, and I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. What to think? I think YouTube, though, for the most part, I was thinking about this the other day. I was talking, and not to make this a real long diatribe of any sort, but I was talking with uh, some of the Not a Bomb guys and, and Jose and stuff about this the other day. The YouTube has really changed the landscape completely because people can access pretty much anything at any time. Most people are interested in things, be it video games, be it a new car, be it a new. And if you want to review for anything, anything. The new water pick that just hit the scene, the new dental floss that just hit the scene. Go to go to YouTube and you can go, um, search for it, and there's reviews. Yeah, and people sit around and watch this stuff. And I'd be remiss if I sat here and told you I didn't use YouTube for stuff. I do. I use it for fixing things. I use it for um, all kinds of stuff. I use it for reviews of things, uh, especially technology involved stuff. I want to, you know, I want to get what I want, and so I'll look at reviews and stuff. So. It's just, it's changed the landscape completely. And there's so much content on there that uh, I think a lot of kids could go without narrative film completely. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I, I Listen, I'm with you. I, I love the screen and screen thing seems to be a really prevalent thing with our, our children's generation. <clears throat> I try to not be heavy handed about that too much but if we are watching a film i say guys just put your phones down and they'll may pick it up a couple times but i I don't generally let them do it if we're watching the film Mm -hmm. um now if they're watching something passively on their own and they're doing that which like you know they'll throw on brooklyn 99 and like right now watch brooklyn 99 and be on his phone or he'll have you know something playing i just yeah the screen is here there's video games and and something there's they tend to do that but Uh um when we're watching films, I do tend to say, look, you know, a couple of times, hey, okay, come on now, pay attention, um, just to try to keep that balance. Right, right. right it's right. not that that doom scrolling, just, you know, constant need to just flip, 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 flip. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, to the point of the video games, I would have said the Warriors, but somehow the heavens gave us a Warriors game. Mm-hmm. Right, loved it, played it, finished it. Yeah, 
just what a joy. Oh, man. I mean, I just what a dream when that came out for me. I was still gaming uh, for yeah. a bit. Uh, I was over the moon. Um, I guess I would probably have loved to have maybe seen like a Mad Max style game. Like a the, grant, like a, there is a, a Mad Max game. Is it like a Rockstar style? Uh, it's kind of Rockstar style. It's not made by Rockstar, though. But it and it, it was okay. It wasn't great. But. Uh, too bad. But if it had Rockstar had given it like the treatment, I would think that would have been very cool. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so much of that stuff lends itself to video games because... Yeah, side missions. Gen- yeah, I mean, that generation grew up watching those films, and, you know, they're able to put that into narrative video games. So, very cool. And there's a lot of stuff that can be done. Like, you know, he, he heard Christopher say, you know, The Thing. They made a video game with that and and some other stuff. And there's still so much stuff. Their Friday 13th game. Matter of fact, and I think in oh, yeah. four, four or five days, there's a Texas Chainsaw Massacre game coming out. No, well, yeah, that's right. I, I think my kids are telling me that. Yeah. So, I mean, these things lend themselves to interactive play. And uh, obviously, they're just the same game format with a you know fancier skin on it. So, you know, they, they I'm actually surprised there's less and less of this. But, you know, sometimes people will say, and, I, and I, I'm one of those people, there's not a lot of great video game movies. Uh, there has been some great, there has been some good ones and there has been some great video game shows. I mean, I think of the last of us, what HBO did recently, that was really good, but, um, you know, those two formats are coming closer and closer together. Uh, definitely. So yeah. And rockstar makes great stuff. They don't make a lot of stuff, but that's because I guess they don't have to. <laughs> yeah. They make a true. lot of stuff. Like, Cause they're still playing. <laughs> GTA five. Oh yeah. Yeah. My son plays it too. Hours and hours, but it's just, it's so open, man. Like yeah, the yeah. sandbox. It's just so big. Uh-huh. I know. All right. He did give us one, this or that. And, uh, I saved it. We're going really long on this intro this morning. So, uh, but this is a, this could be a tough one. Uh, Sergio Leone or John Ford. <laughs> it's not tough for me. I bless Ford. Yeah. But Sergio, this the, he's the straw that stirs the drink for me. He was my gateway into westerns, mm-hmm. spaghetti or otherwise. I'm with and, you. Go ahead. I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, yeah, Ford's great. Listen, Ford's great. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but Leone, to me, took something and made it better. Yes. Right? So yeah. it's, it's, I think you and I have had, kind of had this discussion. And in fact, it, I think it was you who said it. It's not always the guy that created it it's the guy who improved it right and yeah 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 we were talking jallos or something like that maybe i can't remember what it was but it was we were talking about uh brega or was it brega that kind of created the giallo or sort of remember maybe yeah maybe we were talking about early bob was i can't remember now but and we talked about argento just mastering the form and i, I that's where my money goes that's where my you know stirs my drink uh-huh so god bless for it he's he's great but leone for me all day yeah so this gets into the interesting uh, discussion of the creator or the the person that's most identified with a genre or a story type. Um, I guess uh, Mario Bava's The Girl Who Knew Too Much is considered the first one. So maybe I was wrong. So that's what it says. It says uh, on Google that Mario Bava's 1963 film, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, is considered the first Giallo film. Which I could have swore it was Ricardo. Uh, what's his name? Brega or is that his name? Brega, something like that. Freda. 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 Yeah, yeah. Freedom. It's not Brega. Jesus. You know what I mean. You know. You speak in my language. Here. 
<laughs> but that's the one that's considered to be that. Uh, anyway, so and as, as great as uh, Bava films can be, and uh, some of those, you know, like Will said, you know, uh, Dario Argento kind of took it and ran with it. And then you get the derivatives of Argento, which is like Martino and people like that. And that's the great thing about art is that it filters and that it uh, it grows, it changes. Sometimes it deadens, but it but it influences people to do things, right? And that's what art is supposed to do. So as great as John Ford's Westerns are, and there are some great ones, uh, there's no doubt about that. Leone kind of took the Western, the American Western, and he wasn't the first, but he seemed to be the the one that understood it uh, the most. And he just kind of took the the archetypes and just kind of ran with them and made them very base and very simple and simplified them and did it with style. And uh, just kind of re kind of, you know, enlightened people to how great the Western film can be. And uh, yeah, that's why I think, you know, the art is, that's what the great thing about film is that, you know, again, it's derivatives. Everything's derivatives. And people always often say, you're riffing on so-and-so, you're riffing on so-and-so, you have no originality. There is no real originality. There's only, you know, derivatives of derivatives at this point. <laughs> yeah. And just because, listen, a lot of people, everyone, even if, just because we don't know all the people that influenced, you know, Bergman or or, or Kurosawa or... Kubrick uh, doesn't mean they weren't. They were. You just got to go back a little further, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you can appreciate those people all you want, but you know, I mean, it's kind of like you know, uh, you know. Obviously, you know, I don't think Hal Needham was a great filmmaker, but I think Hal Needham made some very interesting films. And you know, obviously, people will say, well, you know, so and so made better films as a stuntman than Hal Needham. Uh, okay, but Hal Needham was a derivative of that, <laughs> and, yeah. I, and he had Burt Reynolds. So it makes a difference. So I don't think there's any wrong answer here, but uh, I agree. As much as I love John Ford films and we've talked about them, and obviously the man who shot Liberty Valance is, you know, was one of Sergio Leone's favorite films. Um, and we talked about that a long time ago. Um, as much as I love that film, you know, I, I would not trade the four or five Westerns that Sergio Leone made for very many other Westerns. I'll tell you that. Like those those Westerns are... Up there, maybe Ducky Suckers a little lower in the. In Still the, really good though. Like if yeah. that's your your misstep, yeah, you're doing pretty good. Yeah, you're doing pretty good. I have to say, <laughs> yeah, it goes way back to early days of our show. We've, ne- uh, we've never talked uh, about that film. Accent. <laughs> we've never talked about that film. It's weird. I know, but that's one of the first things that I think <laughs> even predates our show. Is I mentioned that film. And I was about to mention that Sean Sean, and you dropped it. You started singing it. <laughs> I knew it was meant to be, man. Sean Sean. Yeah, it's a, I, yeah. I knew it's... we were made to do this together when you started singing that. Well, it's it's such a weird uh, composing touch. It's just a strange. I don't oh know. man, it's a strange bit of music. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Neil was deep in his bag on that one. Man. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely was. All right, so that's uh, that's that. I, I, you know, we've went long and strong this uh, morning. We're already almost at an hour. We do this when we get back together after a while. So we're going to have to tighten it up here a little bit uh, because we put out one episode that's like almost two hours and the next episode's like, uh, you know, 60 minutes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, here we go. Um, uh, I don't know. Do you know what time it is? 
Well, I do. What film is it? Do you remember? Is it in Once Upon a Time in the West when there's a timepiece? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have a close-up of the timepiece and they shut it and it's really loud. Yes, that's right. So that device, if you looked at that, <laughs> we would. if we looked at that collectively right now, we'd know what time it is. Mm-hmm. And that is... It's time for time this or this. this. Not this or this. <laughs> this or that. That and that. that Here we go. <laughs> And I'm trying to hit play. Here we go. It won't play. Why is it not playing? It's getting on my nerves. There we go. Moi je joue. Moi je joue, je joue contre vous. Je veux jouer, je joue contre vous. Mais vous Goodness. Again, been away from the game for a little while. Uh, clearly, this or this and that and that. We'll be okay. We'll make it through this. We'll get there. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't really have anything. I'll I'll well, I go. Got you man. Yeah. I got you. I know you always got these. Uh, I often tell people like when I do the show with somebody, I don't usually do the this or that because it's kind of your baby. So well, it's, yeah, I got. I think I've said it before. I have an alarm that goes off at eight thirty every seven days a week. <laughs> yeah. So I can if I got one, you know, or I'm driving or something, I'll do a little voice text to myself. I or, do. Ha- I do have one. It pertains to this film, but uh, but I'll I'll kick that off here in a minute. But I'll let you go first. Uh, okay, <laughs> Laura Jemser or Nieves Navarro. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, but it just is. I guess because we talked about George Eastman a little while ago. Yeah, that's right, man. The Eastman girls, Eastman's Angels. Oh man, that'd be a great series, Eastman's Angels. Yeah. <laughs> Not one for family movie night. Yeah. Eastman's Anals. Oh, whoops. Ain't that. <laughs> That's the Joe D'Amato film. Yeah. Uh, nice. I always love there's that one interview with George Eastman where he's like, I was kind of known for these type of films. And I'm like, yeah, you were. <laughs> I think it's on the Rabbit Dogs DVD. Uh, you know, I, I've come to really appreciate Laura Jimser as the years have gone on. I used to just see her as this one note thing. But I've come to really appreciate her over the years. So I think I'm going to go with her. She is good. Uh, yeah, I don't. It's a tough pick between the two. But uh, yeah. I have come to really appreciate Laura Jimser quite a bit. Um, you know, she she has a she's a cult actor. She has a unique quality that makes her what she is. Yep. Uh, I yep. don't know what that quality is exactly. Uh, nudity or whatever. I think the fact that she's. Was she Indonesian by nature or by? She's naughty by nature. Yeah, she's no, definitely naughty uh, by nature. We know that, but um, that's a good question. I feel like she was more West Indian. Maybe yeah. she's. Ooh, I'm dropping the ball here because I was, I was on the Nieves train. Um, uh, yeah, I'll have to look, but you know, she. Let's see. Oh, she's Indonesian Dutch. Okay, my bad. there we go. So I thought my she bad. was Indonesian. So yeah, my bad. So no, she was. Uh, yeah, and you, you know what? Both of them are still alive, which is awesome. Yeah. She's, uh, wow, listen to this. I didn't know this. One of them is married to George Eastman. Yeah. Yeah. So Jemser is married to Gabrielle Tinti, or was. Was. She ended up being, yeah, she's married to Eastman now, I believe. Look at her. Good for her. (laughs) Um, Man, I'll tell you what. If I go to Italy and I see Jemser and Eastman (laughs) arm in arm. I'm going to faint in the streets of Italy. Yeah, talk about two, you know, it's like it's like the cult actor couple of all time. The power couple, man. <laughs> yeah. 
It really mm. is. Think about it. I mean, just think about that. First of all, they'd be incredibly recognizable because nobody really looks like them. He's so fucking tall. Uh, yeah. He's gigantic and looks unique, and she, you know, she's unique. So it's always amazed me that those two get together. Oh, man. Now I'm dreaming about seeing them somewhere. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna go the other way. I love Jemzer. I think she's great. I don't think she gets enough um, love for kind of having a bit of a, a quiet um, – strength in the film she's in yeah like, uh, well i mean and also in fairness to her i mean she made some garbage movies i mean let's be honest did. yeah she did for sure but I, I think she was always a little better than her films not better than her films but but oh she, at, she was the best thing about those movies yes yeah yes so i think she's a better presence than maybe she's going to be giving credit for mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but i'm going to go with uh nieves navarro aka susan scott yes we did the the death, the Ercoli, who she's married to, Luciano Ercoli. Um, or she was, my bad, for 33 years. Um, she was the headliner in Death Walks on High Heels and Death Walks at Midnight, forbidden photos of Lady Above Suspicion. I just feel like she could carry a film well. She was one of the great kind of final girls in in the Jello scene or, you know, she's, I love her, man. I think she's yeah. great. I think they're both great, but yeah, she's great. Uh, I think they, uh, if I remember right, I think she did her and, uh, Gimser are both in Emmanuel and the, uh, cannibal film. I think they might be. Yeah. I think they're both in the, uh, the cannibal one. Those yep. tend to bleed together for me. <laughs> yeah. that, that, yeah, that, no that no just, pun intended. Yep. Yeah, yes, they do. Yeah. Emmanuel and the last cannibal. She's in that, uh, with, yeah. uh, Gimser. So how about that? How about it, man? Not you exactly this, one that I like to rewatch. Ethics. Yeah. Or that not. Yeah. Ethics or no ethics. Was really <laughs> yeah, yeah. No ethics it's for 200, a, Alex. She was actually in uh, one that I've thought about covering uh, with uh, Richard Harrison and and, and uh, uh, it's a Joe D'Amato film, uh, Orgasmo Nero, which is. Uh, dude, I was just about <laughs> to say that. <laughs> It's just about to say that. Yeah. Oh, man. Orgasm. Yeah. <laughs> it's a Joe D'Amato film. How about, yeah, uh, a.k.a. Sex and Black Magic. Yeah. <laughs> I can, I can, yeah, I can confidently say everything in that film was tastefully done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, you are correct. Even the poster. Yeah, uh, even the Yeah, even the poster. <laughs> All right, I got one. It's related to yeah. this film in particular we're talking about this week. Uh, Haley Joe Osment or Macaulay Culkin. I'll tell you something. <laughs> and I don't want to spoil where we're going with this film. <laughs> I figured this and one this- would be tougher than you thought, though. Um, I mean, except for, you know, where you're getting ready to go with it, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I, listen, I think when I look back at both these young men, now I'm a father. I have two sons. You're a father. You have two children. Um, I, my heart breaks for some of the stuff that kids have to navigate through in the show business world. Yeah, it's a very adult world. Yeah, I never wanted to put my kids in anything like that. Yeah. I just felt like it was too, you know, you saw what happened to just countless child stars. Countless, mm-hmm. countless, it's countless. still It's still happening, dude. It's still happening. Yeah. It's, still, it's, it's, it's always going to happen. There was a young kid, a young Disney star or something that just recently died. Mm-hmm. It's still happening. It's uh, it's not going anywhere. So I will never 
until my kids are old enough to, to try to swing it themselves and mm-hmm. make some decisions, no chance. These but, kids, they're, they're just exposed to a different world way too young. Way, listen, this is out of people's depth as adults in some cases because yeah. you're dealing with sharks and con men and, yeah. and just predators, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, not to speak ill of the collective industry, but you know, people in power um, will abuse that power. So even outside of all that, though, are we going to say something before I said that? No, 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 no. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to get too far down that wormhole because. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I hear you, and I'll, it, I'll jump off. I'm just going to stick with their work. So, I'm not telling you not to. I'm just saying I'm, we could no, probably no, no. talk. We could probably talk about this for an hour. We could. We definitely could. Because we grew up in a time when definitely child stars were exploited to the to the max. It didn't seem to be as much of a, a, an ability to to. Um, uh, to expose that, right? The voices, mm-hmm. you know, weren't as heard. Um, I'll say this. I, I think both are great. I think, you know, Culkin's been oversaturated probably with uh, within pop culture because of Home Alone and stuff like that. I do think um, they're very different child actors in that McCulkin, McCulkin, Macaulay Culkin was more precocious and it somehow comes across without being grating. Like he could just nail that precociousness really well. And he was a really great child actor. Um, but one of the big revelations for me in watching AI, and I don't want us to get too far ahead of it, is is how blown away I was by Haley Joel Osment's performance. Mm. It, it was one of the best child performances I've ever seen in a film. And I look at both these young men and my heart goes out for them, man, because they're at a point now where they're grown men and the internet can be very cruel. And there was that photo of Macaulay Culkin. He looked, you know, a little thin. And, you know, people were speculating and kind of piling yeah. on him. And, and that's then, not to even speak of a lot of the awful, shitty things that people have said about Haley Joel Osment. Yeah, because he's gotten heavier, right? And, bigger. And it's just like, man, people are so gross. Like, yeah, I know, I know. People are so ugly and awful. Um, but to answer your question... I'm going to go with Haley Joel Osment because I don't know if if I just look at the one-two punch of Sixth Sense and AI, I don't know if dramatically Culkin has anything in his in his bag like those two. Uh, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go the same route as you, uh, not to give away my thoughts on his performance in AI either, but uh, I agree. I mean, Home Alone is a pivotal pop culture moment. Absolutely. Um, and you, and you might say to yourself, well, so is the sixth sense, Sammy. And I'm going to sit here and say, you know what? You're right. It is. That was also a pivotal pop culture moment, but the key is, I don't know if McCul, I don't know if Culkin, McCulkin, I want to say that too. I don't know if Culkin ever, I don't know if he's ever going to be able to escape the shadow of home alone. No, it's such a pop culture moment. Whereas Haley Joe Osment, he tried to escape the shadow. Um, I don't know that, that, that cast a big shadow too. The sixth sense does cast a big shadow. I mean, that, that's, that's a big movie and, uh, <laughs> a big moment, but yeah, I think revisiting this, I'm reminded that, you know, he really can act and he really could act for a young kid and he really does some pretty amazing stuff on this. Of course, you know, I'll have some opinions on that too, because, uh, you know, we'll talk about that when we talk about the film, but Spielberg and child actors kind of go hand in hand. He's really good with that. So he's got a good hand with them for sure. Yeah. So we'll talk about that here in a little bit, but 
Yeah, I'm going to go Osmond as well. With the, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you on that one. So, But not to take away from Kalkin, right? Because No, no, no. The, the crown that Kalkin has to wear is heavier because Home Alone is a more accessible family film, whereas Sixth Sense, by and large, like eight-year-olds aren't watching it. It's not a holiday tradition. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that, they're, they're, therein lies the other. I mean, that's like the Peter Billingsley conversation. Yes. I mean, yes. you're talking about a perennial movie. Oh, it's as perennial as it gets. And if you get into, if you're one of these actors who happens to land in a perennial film, that shadow is immense. It never goes anywhere. Uh, I mean, you could argue that in a lot of ways, Jimmy Stewart kind of never even once It's a Wonderful Life became a Christmas film that a lot of people don't even remember the other Jimmy Stewart films. No, no, it's great. And he's an all timer. (laughs) Yeah. And he's an all timer, like great Westerns, great, uh, just great films in general. But yeah. most people, when they think of Jimmy Stewart, what's the first thing they think of? They usually think of It's a Wonderful Life. Absolutely. Whereas, yeah, if Culkin, if you're going to sort of do the Marvel what if, mm-hmm. if he just did maybe My Girl, Uncle Buck, he was in The Good Son. Yeah. He could have gotten away from the Home Loan stuff. Maybe he could have kept going. And I think he tried to. The Good Son was definitely a risk. And I think yeah. he definitely tried to get away from it. But I think it just kind of backfired. And then of course, unfortunately, he got involved in some things, and you know he had some troubles as child actors do. So, sad. All right, do you got any more you want to do? Yeah, uh, maybe just we'll do one or two. Quick. One more, yeah, yeah. If you don't mind, yeah, let's do one more, <laughs> we'll get, and then uh, we'll actually start talking about the film. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna hit you with a dirty one. Oh no, the last one wasn't dirty. This I mean, dirty. Navarro and Gimzer. I mean, that was pretty dirty. That's a dirty one. <laughs> That's a dirty one, no doubt. Hamburgers, no cheeseburger or pizza. Oh, this is my, my primary diet. <laughs> <laughs> that and that. This, was, this and this. <laughs> yeah. This plus this equals you that. Yeah. Oh, man. This is a tough one because a really good cheeseburger oh, can eclipse a complete pizza, but a really great pizza can make you completely forget about hamburgers. <laughs> this is a tough one. This is almost impossible. Uh, you know, I hate to be so, I love pizza. Um, I don't know anybody that doesn't, um, who hates pizza, man. There's, there's cheeseburgers. Yeah. There's people out there who don't eat those, these things, believe it or not. I'm always kind of, I'm always befuddled to get to use that word by the fact that people don't eat these things and don't get me wrong. Yeah. Eat to each their own. Uh, I don't care if you, Uh, yeah, not talking about the ethical thing, just the taste, you know? Yeah, even if you're one of those people who decided you don't want to eat actual meat anymore and you want to do the plant-based thing, yep. that's that's your choice. Go sure. for it. Go for it. Do whatever you got to do. Yep. Um, I got to go cheeseburger. I tell you why. For me, I love the mix on cheeseburger of the cold and the hot. Yeah. The, uh, the old school, remember the McDonald's thing? The, the hot is hot. Yeah, the hot. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But I love that cold lettuce, cold tomato, cold onion. Uh, yeah pickle on top of that hot patty with the cheese yeah it's a great mix and you bite into it and you get that nice crunch mixed with that nice moist red meat oh yes do you do you toast your buns or no uh well i'm toasting my buns right now um (laughs) uh i do sometimes yes sometimes i do sometimes i throw them on the uh skillet for a little bit get a little uh you know get a little hamburger grease on them you know a little healthy uh healthy choice yeah, delicious though. Delicious, yes, exactly. Uh, it just—I don't know. I have to go with that, uh, man. But it's hard to say that. I just had pizza last night. I love pizza. 
So there you go. <laughs> and many an episode, many an episode has seen you have cold pizza as the pregame meal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I didn't have cold pizza this morning though. I wasn't in the mood. <laughs> wasn't in the mood this morning. <laughs> so uh, listen, I really, truthfully, maybe for the first time in the history of this segment, don't have a real answer. But just to be contrarian to even the scales of justice, I'm going to take pizza. Um, I do feel like the one sort of feather in pizza's cap for me is that I feel like I could eat pizza probably more frequently than and, than cheeseburgers. Uh, I do love cheeseburgers. I probably do love them pretty equally or maybe uh-huh. Uh-huh. maybe cheeseburger like 5149. But if I had to get rid of one and never eat it again, I'm pr- I'll take pizza even if it's just to be contrarian. Well, because- yeah. Well, there, there is the element of pizza you can get more diverse. You definitely can, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, you can get avocado and Swiss cheese and all that on your burger, but pizza, you can go with veggies, you can go with meat, you go with cheese, you can go with like- well, Buffalo uh, chicken, uh, buffalo chicken pizza. Buffalo like me and, my, me and my son love buffalo chicken pizza. A margarita, you can put uh, bocconcini on it, you can do buffalo cheese, you can do, just on and on and on. You can do with no tomato sauce, on and on and on. Well, you can do it with uh, no marinara and do ranch. I mean, it's loaded with fat, but you can do ranch as the base sauce. It's I a, won't do that, but but people can do that. You can, people can do really that, yeah. listen. The 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 world is your oyster. It's yeah. it's your sandbox when it comes to pizza. It's your pizza. It's your dough. Yeah, <laughs> give her, give her, give her, give her. It's your dough. It's your dough. Ranch ranch sauce, meat lovers. Here we go. Oh man, you know I got to say <laughs> that that doesn't. It I, I I wouldn't eat that, but I would try that. Have a few bites, and then I would be afraid that I would love that. <laughs> yeah, gotta keep it away, man. Oh, <laughs> I mean, talk about a Pete that ranch sauce idea, man. Talk about a pizza that puts on the pounds quick. Woo, that original sin. Yeah, oh man, man that's a little too a little too much for me. But I've had it before, really, chicken ranch pizzas, and I've had it before, and it's good. You wouldn't think it would be, but it is. But it's loaded. Once it's man. baked, yeah, yeah, yeah. Woo. All right, or that's or shout out tomato pie in New Jersey, as they call them. They're really good too. <laughs> yeah. Anything like that is delicious. I mean, the idea of hot bread and cheese and sauce, <sighs> just delicious. And the smells, right? The smells. Oh, yeah. All right. I think that's that for this and that. And that's that for this intro, which has gone on for well over an hour, going into an hour and 15 Ooh. minutes. It's hard. <laughs> We're going to get in the short shift this week. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to take a short break, uh, come back, and we're going to discuss artificial intelligence. We'll be back right after this. Daydream, I fell asleep amid the flowers for a couple of hours on a beautiful day. Dream. I dream of you amid the flowers For a couple of hours Such a beautiful day I dream of the places I've been with you Always sad with the stream flowing by And then when I kiss you the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, the only podcast where you're going to hear the Gunter Kalman Choir. I promise you that. 
Not anybody yeah, else you, is jamming the the Gunther Common Choir on a Sunday morning at eight thirty a.m. <laughs> Eastern time. <laughs> yeah, but that's just how we roll over here that's at the GGT. Roll, man, that's how we do. <laughs> We've been doing it for a long time, and uh, we continue to do it the way we want to do it. <laughs> if you had Gunther Common Choir on your bingo card for music to be played this week, yeah. First of all, I want you to call me. Because uh, and you can find me somehow, some way out there, yeah. messenger or something. Because if you if you had that on your bingo card this week, <laughs> then you have won something. I have no idea what it is. Maybe a cheeseburger pizza, and we got to buy some lottery tickets together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, AI artificial intelligence, two thousand one, directed by one Steven Spielberg, written by Brian Aldiss, Ian Watson, Steven Spielberg himself. A little bit of Stanley Kubrick in the background. A highly advanced robotic boy longs to become quote-unquote real so that he can regain the love of his human mother. Uh, this one stars Haley Joel Osment, Jude Law, Francis O'Connor, Brendan Gleeson pops up, Sam Robards, uh, William Hurt uh, in here as well, Ken Lung. It's always interesting to see Ken Lung. He pops up in here. Yep. Clark Gregg in a small part. Um, uh, Haley Joel Osment's dad, I believe Eugene Osment, pops up at one point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's about it. I feel like there might be somebody else that pops up in the back end. Um, but anyway, neither here nor there. That's your main cast. Uh, this film came about. Steven Spielberg had been talking with Kubrick for a long time. They were really close friends, something I didn't know until much later. And uh, Kubrick was always fascinated with uh, Steven Spielberg's filmography because he was always able to be successful. And uh, Kubrick, believe it or not, always wanted to be as successful as possible because obviously that gives you a chance to make more movies. And uh, because of his way, the way he worked, uh, his films had to be successful because he really he made big independent movies essentially. And uh, he didn't work fast like Steven Spielberg does or anything else. So he's kind of always fascinated by that. And so they were really tight. And he had worked on this film forever. I remember this was. Uh, talked about in Hollywood trades and everything for years that he was going to make this movie. And I thought it was going to be completely fascinating, such a Kubrickian type of idea. Brian Aldiss is an interesting writer. And, uh, then he eventually kind of passed it on to Steven Spielberg and then he kind of passed away, uh, kind of, uh, uh, unexpectedly, at least for most people, he was very private. So nobody really knows the kind of health he was really in. I've read rumors that he was actually in bad health. You know, he did smoke, for many years, he came up of that age when people smoked all the time and stuff. So he may have been in bad health. Nobody really knows. I've, I've heard mixed accounts that, you know, his uh, health was deteriorating rapidly behind the scenes. But again, very private person. Nobody's ever really said for sure. And, uh, you know, he kind of passed away and it, it hit everybody in the movie world kind of big. And uh, it, hits, it hits Spielberg big. So he decided to make this a film for him in dedication to one Stanley Kubrick, one of the great filmmakers. So. That's kind of an easy kind of a 10,000 foot view of the background of this story. Uh, Will uh, had rewatched this and then hit me up about how it affected him on a rewatch. And I was like, well, you know, this could be an interesting conversation for us to have. We both agreed with that. And I was like, well, you know, I'm usually picking arrow stuff and everything else because of our sponsorships and stuff. And I was like, well, let's do this. This is something we don't typically do. Uh, it'll be interesting to talk about uh, blockbuster filmmaker making kind of an art house film. Uh, in some ways, but also still some ways making a blockbuster film. Will, if you want to lead on this, um, I know you've watched it a 
uh, recently, and I know I have too, but I don't know if you wanted to lead on it or not. But uh, I'm happy uh, to, unless uh, unless you want to. No, go ahead. Okay. So you'd said in the the beginning, it's interesting to look at Spielberg and Kubrick, two of the titans of film uh, of the past. 70 of ever just regardless of time frame oh yeah of ever those two names are synonymous with movie history just titans mm-hmm. right now very different um approaches to very different approaches very different sentiments on the surface as far as their feelings towards mankind yes one's a bit of a misanthrope one is an eternal optimist mm-hmm. um but I, you know, I'd love to. At least as far as we know, we could find out Spielberg might be a misanthrope behind the scenes. <laughs> and this is his way to try to perpetuate a little more positive out in the world. Yeah, yeah. No, I, w- um, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Let's put it that way. But two guys, a very different approach. But it's it's very cool to me that they had this friendship. I don't know if a book was ever written or there's ever anything extensive about their friendship or their sort of creative collaborations or just um, kind of them going back and forth on stuff. Like I would have loved to have just heard them talk about films and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and technique and things with their different approaches. Um, So to me, this film, I hadn't seen it since it came out in theaters. So it'd been about 22 years. Mm -hmm. I, to be honest, I'd intended to watch this with my kids. I felt like they liked Sixth Sense they dig Spielberg. Uh, it was a chance for me to get into something with them that um, kind of take a next step and and just dig into something a little more existential. And it's still with a, a sort of under the, the Trojan horse of kind of summer adventure film in a way. Um, what a difference 20 years makes. The last time I saw this, I was uh, I was 21. And now I'm 43 and now I'm a father and going in to this film, I'd seen it the ones prior. My impression of it was good film, not a great film. Uh, Jude Law was my favorite part of the film as a 21 year old man or 20 year old man. Uh, I think Jude Law is one of the, you know, most underappreciated actors of our time. Uh, and I don't want, I don't mean that to sound like hyperbole, but I feel like, you know, he's always had leading man looks, but he's always been willing to, to do supporting roles or do roles that certainly have less vanity than, than a lot of, uh, leading men would do. Right. Um, so that was kind of my impression coming back into this was Jude Law is, is the best part of the film. So I'm watching the film and. And it just, as this film's going on, just full disclosure, I I just, I'm bowled over at the nuance and the emotional uh, subtleties that that Haley Joel Osment is able to bring to the screen as David and that Spielberg's able to kind of cultivate. And I think this is a really great hand-in-glove collaboration between Spielberg and Osment. Yeah, I, I you know I, I like you. I had only seen I actually saw this movie in Hawaii of all places in a very wow. small theater. 
the core memory right there because you know you're not in Hawaii that often. Mm-hmm. And I was there, and there was this really small theater which probably had a screen about the size of an 85 inch monitor. <laughs> But they were, you know, they, you know, they, they, it's Hawaii. So they were showing this movie. They, they were showing two movies. They were showing this. And I can't remember what the other one was to save my life, but I saw this. And uh, that was the only time I'd seen it. So it wasn't an optimal viewing experience, but I do remember having the same kind of reaction. Maybe I liked it a little bit more than you did the first time, but I do remember having the same reaction. I think in my head, I had built this up too much because I had been reading about this film for 20 years. Yep. And it's almost like it it couldn't have it couldn't have hit the heights I wanted it to hit. Um even with Spielberg doing some Kubrickian things here. Oh yeah. I was still kind of thrown off by the movie itself and wasn't quite ready for what it is. And that 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 that's the interesting thing about it. I think this is one of those films where you go back and look at it now and you realize it's it's it, it's something else than i think what i walked into that theater that day to try to find you know to, to watch i think i was expecting a stanley kubrick-esque experience which i got some of but i don't think i was expecting the mixture of spielberg and kubrick that i ended up getting and i don't think i appreciate it i just gotta be honest with you i don't think i appreciated some of the things in the film like the set design and production yep. design and some of the themes and stuff. Um, for that matter, you know, I'll, I'll talk about it as we talk about it here. I do think there are some misses in the film, and I don't think it's perfect, but I do think it's better than I thought it was the first time I saw it. Agreed completely. And I, I agree that there are some missteps, which I'll get into here in a moment. I'll just touch on a few kind of overarching things here before I do. But that's the thing. I think this film has aged better than I expected. And again, I never thought it was a bad film. I thought it was a good film. Um, but I'm really happy you picked it. Because I feel like probably like most people, most of our, our circle of friends, most it doesn't feel to me to be the kind of film that people have revisited a lot. Um, and I think that it really is up for kind of a critical reassessment from people because uh, well, for the reasons we're going to talk about and that we've already kind of touched on, um, it, you know, for me, sci-fi um, – I really, I like sci-fi. I don't love it. I was a horror kid. Uh, but sci-fi really stirs my soul when it gets kind of existential and it, and it kind of asks questions, um, you know, philosophically, you know, um, ethically, um, it, our relationship with it, sort of what it means to be human, um, where do we go with technology? How do we incorporate into our lives? And this film touches on a lot of that stuff. So the stuff that really um, I find incredibly engaging to go down the rabbit hole and look at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? It does a really good job. The stuff for me, I'll be very forthright. I'm sure you'll agree with me. The stuff that I find the clumsiest, ironically, and sort of on the nose is – the early stuff when David, Osmond's character, is in the house with his parents and the brother gets introduced. Like that whole segment to me is it's not poorly done. It just feels very kind of clumsy and on the nose to set up everything else that happens in the film. 
I don't know if that's what you your thoughts were or uh, I don't know. I don't know. I you know, I, I've thought about this. I, I think for me I think I might like the opening and the the back end more than I like anything in the middle. Oh really? Yeah. And I think in the first time I saw it, I think I liked the middle more than I liked anything else. Interesting. Because I like the middle the journey and the, the the end for me are the the strongest part. Like I like the opening with Hurt. I think Hurt's really good. I wish there had been a little more Hurt, but I understand why mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he's not in the film more because it's not his film. It's yeah. David's film. Right, right. The Osmond character. Um, I think there seems to be a pretty good – like Swinton's pretty good. I don't know. I just feel like some of the – some of the the tension or the conflict with uh, Martin Swinton, the Jake Jake Thomas character, Martin Swinton, some of that stuff feels very just by the numbers to me. And the Robard, I don't think Robards is great in the role. I feel he very, feels very cold to me, and I know some of it's by design, uh, even though he's kind of the the gateway to get David in the house. But uh, for those that haven't seen it. This couple of uh, their sons um, in a coma, right? And yep. they're beside themselves, and they have this opportunity to um, to have this this very human like boy fill that void for them, right? And um, once he gets sort of uh, into the house and and set up and comfortable, uh, their son comes home. He he's out of his coma, and of course that sets up conflict, sort of yeah. siblings. I think, you know, I think one of the things, not to cut you off, but I think one of the things oh. that's interesting about that whole dynamic for me this time around was that I don't know that the robot boy, the android boy, is to fill the void for the Robards character. I think he's doing it as a gift to fulfill something his wife is missing, to maybe fix his marriage, obviously, because there's a lot of stress. And I think this time around, I found that really fascinating. I found it really fascinating because he seems to be much quicker, even though he does end up developing some feelings for the robot boy, he seems to be much quicker to move on from David once the, his son comes back than she yeah, does. She's a, little, she's, a, she's a little hesitant, right? She's, she's more gun-shy of the two, ironically. Yeah, right? yeah. She, she develops real feelings. And I, and I think that's why the end of the movie works, because oh, man. she yeah. develops those feelings, and then they, make, they, they, they give you this caveat in the film that the android can develop feelings if you give this certain code or these certain words. Sequence of words, yeah. And the reason why they give you an option to do that probably is so the Android doesn't get connected to you or you don't get too connected to the Android. So those are really big and fascinating questions in a way, because you have to, you know, morally you have to ask yourself the question, do I want this? Uh, This could go sideways for me. One of the things about being a human being that is so fascinating is that we can, anthropomorphize things you know robots we can anthropomorphize i mean hell if you want to you can anthropomorphize your computer uh your your dogs your cats uh you know a raccoon that you just saw run down the street that you have affection for yeah because that's one of the things that makes us very human i don't think animals do that by nature i don't think they sit around and go oh look at the two raccoons playing with each other this one's saying that this one's saying that i don't think they do that but i think we do and our culture does that our entertainment does that as well and 
I think for me, the reason why that opening worked this time, because I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, the first time I saw it, I felt the same way you feel, at least right now anyway, during this mm-hmm. conversation, which is the opening felt very clunky. And I thought Spielberg is out of his depth. He's not, he's trying to do Kubrickian things here and he's not nailing it. It's, it's, it's off. Something is off. And then it got to the middle part, which is the Peter Pan-esque type adventure with the Lost Boys and everything else. And that stuff worked because that's what Spielberg can do. We know he can do that stuff. And then he gets to the end and I thought, well, this is going to impact me no matter what. Although I think he took a long time to get to, and I still do think he takes a long time to get to the, the final point. He takes probably a little, a little longer than he should. Yeah. I think that it's interesting, but he does a very Spielbergian thing too, which is, well, I don't want to give it away, but I think that's what the fascinating thing about the intro is this time around. I like you, did not like the Sam Robards performance. I thought he's kind of pointless in this whole movie, but now going back and looking at it this time around, I realized that he's the one that kind of realizes he may have made a mistake mm-hmm. and he doesn't know how to process that mistake. And honestly, dude, I don't know. I, I there's several heartbreaking moments in this film. Yes, there is. But I don't know, for me, if there's a more heartbreaking moment than when she realizes she has to take the boy to the farm, oh, so to speak. Man. It is so much. Now, don't get me wrong. The end of it's heartbreaking, too. And I, I bet I know why it punched you in the gut as much. I, I, I don't bet I know. I know I know, you know why it punched you in the gut so much. Yeah. Um, It punched me in the gut as well. But... The abandonment of the the artificial child and the fact that she has at this point managed to have feelings for it and let this artificial child have feelings for her is such a complicated and Kubrickian slash Spielberg moment. <laughs> it is. It, the way it's, it's, it's knotted up emotionally, ethically, and otherwise is – yeah, it's it's really it, it, it's it's it just gets your brain racing. And the fact here's for me, it, the fact that she makes that decision, because I don't know that the Sam Robards character, I can't recall him ever making the decision. And I'm actually stunned because, you know, in, in the in the world of, you know, the dog has to be put to sleep. The dad usually does these terrible things. Yep. And in this world, she does it because she has the true feelings for this. A character, and I'm kind of blown away by that because, again, in the real world, I find that most people who can't put their dog to sleep are the people who are absolutely in love with their dog, so they get somebody else to do it because it's just too much for them. It's and I savvy. don't, yeah, I don't, I don't slight anybody for that. Everybody's different. No. It can be really tough, but it's it's just a really powerful moment that I do remember the first time I saw it. I do remember that sticking with me. Oh and, yeah, and really leaving a bad taste in my mouth. One of those Kubrickian bad taste of, you know, that misanthropic behavior, the fact that human beings can be so uh, thin, so shallow, because yeah. uh, it's 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 probably the most Kubrickian thing in the film, really. The fact that we would create something just for us, only to destroy that same thing, callously and just sort of quickly without. Jumping into something without thinking of the consequences, yeah. right? Human, so, human arrogance, human arrogance, right? Human it's, arrogance and yeah. just a lack of foresight. Yeah, it's just that's something. Yeah, he was he was fascinated with that, 
And I'm fascinated with that as well as a person. So that stuff really spoke to me this time. And honestly, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. The first time I saw it, I like Sam Robards, there's no point for him to even be in this movie really. But this time around, I just, I got a different taste from it. And the other thing that I noticed this time around watching the intro and again, not still a lot of your thunder. I'm not trying nope. to at all, but I just, oh, no, this, this is a two way conversation. Yeah, I got to get this out. But the fact that the young boy, the brother is so jealous, which is oh, yeah. a very common occurrence with siblings. Yep. And the cruelty of his humanity being young because young people are cruel. Mm-hmm. That's not a secret. The cruelty of his reaction to the David character is pretty amazing in that it feels so real and so yeah, so so awful and so in, in a way so Kubrickian, but also so Spielbergian in a weird way. Um yep. and it really worked for me this time around. Um, which I was kind of surprised by because I remember, like you, I remember that first uh I don't know how long it is, twenty or thirty minutes. The opening takes a little while to establish itself. I remember mm-hmm. thinking the same thing. I remember thinking uh, Spielberg's out of his depth there. This is not his type of movie. And then he goes back into Steven Spielberg territory and everything's okay. But this time around, I've, I really appreciated the opening. And I, you know, I agree with you. I wish there was more William Hurt in the film. He, he obviously is playing a character. Um, there's a bit of a plot twist there that I don't want to give away because uh, some folks may have not seen this film yet. So it is a twist and it is a surprise moment. But his character actually has some personal stake in the game here. And, yes. And uh, that complicates things as well. And it also makes you think about, is that a good idea? You know, as a human being? I don't know if that's a good idea. I don't think that's a good idea. I got to say for the record, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> no, I don't think it's a good idea. But again, it, it circles back to that that nearsighted impulsiveness that sometimes people think with their hearts in the moment without thinking of any of the consequences, right? And the emotional um, price you're going to have to pay down the road. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and it it gets into the world of ethics and should we create life uh, both biologically or artificially? Yeah. You know, it gets into all these questions um, that I think Kubrick was fascinated with and, you know, Again, maybe out of Spielberg's depth, but the 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 themes are there for childhood amazement and wonder, which is what Spielberg is known for. Yes. But it's also there for Kubrick and his questions of, you know, should we procreate at all? Artificially or biologically? I mean, have we have we ran the and I, I'm speaking for Stanley Kubrick, who I never met and only admired from afar, but it always felt to me like he was like, you know, should we even be here at this point? Maybe we've, uh, maybe we've, uh, ran the road. Maybe we've, we've done what we can do and maybe we shouldn't do anymore. So I don't know. I don't know. Go ahead. Yeah, there's, Sorry. there's so, no, no, there's so much that we could touch on with this. I almost feel like it's funny. You know, this is a film that I would have dismissed as a good film, not a great film, uh, an admirable attempt at something. But I, I again, Looking at it now, I think there's so much that we could touch on with this one. Um, like you said, some of the stuff they frame the android boy, you know, having that 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 boyhood wonder and that that discovery, right? And those those little those sort of cute vignettes uh, in that opening sequence. But I got to I got to tip my hat to you because I'd never really given any thought to the Robards character 
kind of flailing at things and trying to desperately fix something by by plugging a hole in and filling a void with the David uh, Android until now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so I that's, that's something, you know, a good – Yeah, a good husband, a good partner Yeah, would, <clears throat> you know, they try to do something. Maybe they wouldn't yeah. do this, okay? But, but maybe they would. I'm sure they would. Yeah, sure. but maybe they would. Or, you know, Some. I mean, people have done crazier things to satisfy their significant other. They've murdered people, for Christ's sake. Yeah, they certainly have. People have done crazy shit to make people happy. So that's how I saw it this time around. No, you're right. You're right. Um, it's funny. You know, it. it's, you know, much is said about this one kind of being, uh, you know, it's Pinocchio. They even mention it in the film. It's it's very Pinocchio. Yeah, Pinocchio slash Peter Pan. We kind of talked about this. And Blade Runner. Yeah, we yeah. There's definitely some Blade Runner in here. <laughs> in, in terms of production design and thematically. Yes, yes, definitely some of that going on. Um, yeah, we. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I, I feel no, like no, go we, ahead. Go ahead. Well, what did we we covered? It was a couple weeks back. We covered something that also had these elements in it. I felt like. Um. I'm looking at the the ever growing list of films that we've covered here. I'm looking at it now. Was uh, well, wasn't the most dangerous game? Wasn't Warriors Two or the Divine Enforcer? Jesus, what was it? I can't. I feel like there was another film we talked about that had these kind of elements to it. But maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Uh, oh, the Young and the Damned, the Louis Bunuel film. Yeah, 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 yeah. These yeah. kind of Oliver it's, Twist it's, slash Peter Pan slash Pinocchio esque type elements. This tragic youth run we've had. It's like we got to get into some just sleaze again. This is too heartbreaking. Yeah, no. Next week is more tragic youth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. yeah. Oh, boy. So, so I, I think that is interesting, though. It, it asks these questions and, and it kind of gets back into these classic stories of of loss. And But the Pinocchio elements of this one, you're right. They're very, they're very prevalent. They are. And I, you know, I. I lament that there's a few mentions too much that almost make it on the nose, but it it is a very wonderfully sort of uh, realized Pinocchio tale with, like I said, with a with a heavy sprinkling of Blade Runner. But um, I, this is on the Criterion Channel. We should say, mm-hmm. right, for people that can't track this down anywhere, it is on there uh, under their AI series. Ironically, it's like films dealing with technology that they've got like Johnny Mnemonic and other uh, sort of technologically based films. Um, but yeah, I love, uh, we just touched on this. I love the sort of the robot and childlike wonder things that are mundane and just every day that we kind of take for granted. I remember taking my kids for walks and these are things that I never would have appreciated as a, as a 21 year old viewer, um, take them for walks and, and squatting down low and, and, and putting a ladybug on my finger and a blade of grass mm-hmm. and how you can be fixated on that for about 10 minutes. You get these small moments like this in the film. And this is one of the joys as, as someone who deeply loves film is the experience you get viewing something through different eyes. Right. right and right. that's what this, uh, this viewing has really, uh, really benefited or really allowed me to do. Um, Great moment from Osmond, the imprinting sequence when she um, when she's saying that sequence of words. It, it's a subtle thing, but just the eyes almost go from it's not a blank, but there seems to be life in the eyes, and there's this like this light goes on, and it's there's just so much. Um, 
emotional nuance yeah. to Osmond's performance that, again, he has to carry it across the finish line, but he's got a great coach in his ear with, with Spielberg. And I just think that that it works wonderfully, even in these small moments like that, which in the grand scheme of the film, the imprinting sequence is such a small moment, but it just further accentuates um, how wonderful a collaboration it was with those two. Right. right. I, I agree. Uh, the The key there is, I think, Spielberg himself. Uh, we've seen him get great child performances over and over and over again. It just seems to be something he knows how to do. Oh, yeah. Um, oh. There's really no other way to describe it. I mean, he just gets really great child performances out of child actors. Can, I want to say this before I forget. So another thing that we have the benefit now of adding context to Spielberg and making this film mm-hmm. is we've had the Fablemans, which uh, was based on his life. And he was very, very close with his mother and he was close with his father, but there was, um, it was a tough relationship, I think, right? Tough relationship. And it's, it's fascinating to look at this film and look at the avatars of mother and father and the relationship that David has with them and not extrapolate some kind of personal um, emotional context for Spielberg in that dynamic. Right, right. It's fascinating to look at that now and have the benefit of of him being more forthright about his own past and then how it relates to the dynamic in this film. Yeah. That's very interesting. And also, this is just a minor aside, but I couldn't help, like the Robards character to me, like he feels almost like like uh, Richard Dreyfus. Like it's like he looks like Richard Dreyfus a little bit. He does. Like I don't know if that was a subconscious thing or he's going back to the Dreyfus well or <laughs> I, but it's just it's funny to me. Maybe Dreyfus was too old to play the role. And and O'Connor to me really reminds me I God, I couldn't help but think it over and over. Jessica Harper. Uh yes. Yes. Uh, are you talking about the the lady? Oh yeah, she looked like Jessica Harper, and there's another oh. one, Rebecca Ferguson. She looked like Rebecca Ferguson too, for, for to me for some reason. She does a little bit, yeah. She does yeah. a little bit. Kind of a mix between both of those, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. She's really good in the film, though. She's really, She's really good. Really good in the film. She is really good in the film. Uh, I'll tell you what else is really good in the film, and this many years on, it holds up wonderfully. And it's it's definitely one of the like the biggest delights from the film is the character of Teddy. Oh, the teddy bear? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that uh, man, that, that stuff is, now that, talk about something Steven Spielberg does really well. Oh. This is the kind of stuff he does really well. He takes something that isn't human at all, and he makes it feel as human as you can make it feel. And the yes. teddy character is the character, I think that, honestly, is the character we're supposed to identify with when we're watching the film. Well, when we see the conflict with the two boys, when we see David on his journey, um, Teddy really is that. Yeah, and Teddy's almost like the the antithesis of Hal, isn't he? Like, yeah, yeah. In a way, in a way, he is. Well, no, no, completely. You're right because he is built for emotion and for support. Yes. And Teddy, the great thing about Teddy is Teddy's actually questioning the things David's doing. Like yes. he's he's like David, you shouldn't be doing this. David, yes. don't pay attention to this. David, don't do that. I'm almost like a father figure. And it's it's interesting. It's an interesting relationship. And actually, I think quite a brilliant way to uh, to keep 
people involved in the story because again, he's anthropomorphizing this 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 teddy bear, but it keeps people involved in the story. And you, uh, for lack of a better purpose or whatever, I mean, from a good chunk of the movie, you are identifying heavily with um, uh, the Teddy character. I think Teddy is fantastic. And listen, outside of just what the Teddy character brings emotionally to the film from a nuts and bolts, practical standpoint, what a feat mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. off the Teddy character. There's a really great special feature on one of the guys who designed, I think it was the principal uh, creator of Teddy. And he worked with Spielberg a lot. He's collected a lot of things in the realm of film. It's a really, I meant to message you about it. It's about a 10 minute little piece on him and his workshop and talking about uh, designing Teddy and it's really, really great. So um, yeah, it's, it's well worth everyone's time, but yeah, Teddy's great. Um, what else? Uh, what else do we got here? Yeah. Kids are shitty. You mentioned that. Um, they definitely are. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what Spielberg and I don't mean my kids, and that sounds so hypocritical. I just mean people can be cruel. Kids can be cruel. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I love my kids to death. I guarantee you they've been cruel to somebody. And I hope they learn from it. And I'm sure somebody has been cruel to them. And I hope they've learned from that. Uh, absolutely. And that's one of the biggest things. Um, All I can do is say you shouldn't be that way and yeah. keep moving along. But... The truth is kids do things that we can't control as human, as, as adults. And, and we have to be there to talk to them about these things. That's the key. I agree. I listen. And I, I, you know, not to toot our own horns. I, you know, heard from a number of people. Our, our kids are wonderfully kind and inclusive. And I'm grateful for that because I've seen, you know, I've seen it just how cruel the world can be to people. Right. And, oh, yeah. hope, you know, hopefully that they continue to, to be, they're going to make their, they're going to misstep, but hopefully their, their body of work as a person is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're going to misstep. We all misstep. We all misstep. Yeah. They'll have, they'll have good relationships. They'll have bad relationships. That's, that's the human condition, but hopefully at the end of the day, um, you know, you raise them to be good people and that's what they are. So yeah. Body of work is, is good. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, I'll tell you what. Spielberg loved that style of car. You know the car that Swinton's <laughs> driving with David? It's like the Minority Report car. Yeah. He really was fixated on that kind of design. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me of that, and weirdly, I don't know why, <clears throat> I ended up getting some Total Recall vibes with the taxi, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the, yeah, for sure. The Johnny Taxi or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good, good one, man. That holds up well, too. Um, how about this? So then, you know, film's kind of moving along and, and we break away a bit from, from David and the family dynamic and we get, uh, we get Gigolo Joe, we get Jude Law and he kind of looks like this wooden mannequin the way they've done his makeup. He looks great. He's a, he's a love machine. Mm-hmm. Basically. Which, you know, even though Spielberg had a lot to do with the flesh market and all that stuff and that's kind of his thing, the Jude Law character does feel very Kubrickian too, because it does seem like if we're creating artificial intelligent children to fill a void we would also create artificial intelligent uh uh prostitution Mm -hmm. that would make a lot of sense Uh, 
as disturbing as that is to say out loud, that would make sense because (laughs) it's not a real person. Um, So maybe people can justify that more. Well, Joey's character mentions that, and I'll I'll try to find it later on because he's got a he's got a great line, kind of a heartbreaking truth that he says to David uh, that I'll try to find the line later on. But um, yeah, it's the you know it's uh, that scene when Joe is introduced. It almost feels like a Wong Kar Wai film. It's just saturated in color. Yeah, and, it really does. That's good. That's a good point. Yeah, feels like that. Yeah, it's really great. And I just I love all that kind of stuff. Like there's that scene with the dump truck. This is a great scene. Oh yeah. Oh, it's like a, it's almost like a horror film, right? It kind of shifts and it's this dump truck and all the, and again, it speaks to the impulsiveness and the nearsightedness and the kind of callous nature of humanity. Uh, and again, that, that sort of, um, that knot of, should we care that these robots are being disposed of and dumped because they're being dumped and they're, they're like scrap parts and they're all sifting through the, the pile of parts to look for a hand or to look for this. And, um, and then this, the kind of, let's look at the close encounters shot with that moon ship that comes and Gleason's coming to, to kind of hunt them down. And it's almost very Orwellian. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really good sequence, really thrilling sequence. Yeah. I think the, the, for me watching this time, that's one of the parts where I feel like Spielberg really kind of puts himself in there because the robots kind of turn and you get a little bit of a revolution from the robotic uh, kind of population. Whereas I think with Kubrick, they, they would have just kept losing. <laughs> they would have guessed. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so then we get this thing. It's called the flesh fair and I don't want to turn this political. Yeah. But my wife was watching that part with me <laughs> and I'm watching the flesh fair. And I, and, and I said, you know, this feels like a MAGA rally to me. <laughs> And she's like, I was going to say the same thing. And my wife's not as sort of politically minded as I am. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it feels like that to me. It feels like like, uh, devout, uh, blind devotion. It feels like, uh, yeah. It's righteous, the self-righteousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it can be right wing or it can be left wing. But uh, certainly it feels like right wing right now because that's all over the news and that's what's happened recently. Uh, yeah, yeah. But this kind of blind devotion, this fascism, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, yeah. it definitely feels like that. And again, that's another thing Kubrick was fascinated with was this, you know, this this sense that one section of the population is correct. Yeah, it's it's nuts. And that happens. And I'll tell you what, fun fact, ministry's playing in that scene. <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. Fun fact, <laughs> Kubrick insisted on ministry because he was a ministry fan, <laughs> which is wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was an open-minded guy, man. Yeah, very cool, very cool. (laughs) Fun fact, Chris Rock makes a cameo in that scene. (laughs) Like, voice of Chris Rock through one of the robots. Fun fact, we picked the Gunther Coleman Choir over Ministry this week as a lead-in song. (laughs) Maybe a missed opportunity, but... (laughs) Not really. (laughs) But, you know, that's how it goes. Al Jorgensen weeps somewhere. (laughs) He definitely Um, is weeping, yes. (laughs) Yes, uh, I love, you know, I love, and just, this is a very Spielbergy thing, but I love the, the kind of the kindness. It's a brief moment, but, but Spielberg does it so well is the moment with the nanny Android trying to kind of, she's falling apart and she's trying to protect David. Yeah. Because that's her programming, right? It's her programming. It's, it's great. But that, that just gets into the whole ethics, right? Like, well, it gets into our programming. Our exactly. And, and the ethics of it all the spectacle, this kind of lust for, for blood. 
uh, or ill. Yeah, I mean, it asks some big questions. I mean, uh, religion and beliefs are programming. Mm-hmm. Um, let's not forget that. And it it, it asks uh, some really big questions there. It's not just, uh, you know, Flesh Fair sounds like it'd be exciting. Love City, the you know, when you get to the love part of town and all these things. These, these seems like uh, devious kind of uh, strange behaviors. But really, this is, I think, Spielberg commenting on, you know, as Kubrickian as he can, humanity's faults and our programming yes. and how... You know, again, we, we we talked about this about the beginning. We we build these things only to toss them in the ocean, so to speak. Yeah, or yeah, to toss them in the ocean and or to reshape them conveniently yeah. to suit our what we want. Take it as make it as simple as a plastic bottle of water. Yep. That is made for us individually. But what what happens with the plastic bottle afterwards? Some of it might go to the recycling bin, sure. Some of it might go where it needs to go. A lot of it doesn't. So it's the question of out of sight, out of mind. It's the question of us creating things that are convenient for us, only to to not understand we're destroying things on the other end. And internally, microplastics. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's a big it's a big question. Yes, and I'm telling you right now, I promise you, Steven Spielberg and Stanley Kubrick were smart enough to know this. Those are smart guys. Those are not. They're not just saying this stuff for fun. They're saying this stuff for a reason. You can you can call Spielberg a sentimental filmmaker, but don't mistake his intelligence. No. Right? Yeah, do not mistake that. He's a very smart man. The man didn't get to the top of one of the most cutthroat industries in the world um, by being a naive romantic. No. I mean, like he, he enjoys those kinds of films, and I get that. Yeah. And I, I love those kinds of films sometimes, too. But you look at his filmography as a whole— and you see a man that's very well-rounded. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, I love the little singing in the rain dance that Gigolo Joe does. Uh, yes. I, I, I thought of you immediately <laughs> when that moment happens. I'd forgotten about it because I'd only seen it the one time. Yeah. But immediately I thought of you. <laughs> uh, good stuff, man. Good stuff. Um, I'm going to try to run through because we're going to run so long. There's just This is a very dense film. I love the design of the the love. I think it's the Love City. Is that what it's called? Love City. Yeah, Love City or something like that. I mean, it's very Japanese. Very Japanese. Very Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, apparently, those like big mouths that that they went into um, were Kubrick, like original Kubrick design. Yeah. They they out of all the out of all the production design, that stuff it it felt very Clockwork Orange in a way. I, that was my next note was yeah. how clockwork orange right down to the camera, like that angle when the car is going into when it's got Adrian, what's his name? Adrian, uh, the, he was on that show. Curly hair. Um, oh, uh, Jesus. I can't remember his name. Posse. What the fuck was it called? Uh, I don't know. I know. Oh. Grenier, 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 yeah, Adrian Grenier, whatever. Grenier. So when they're all going in there, there's that shot. It almost looks like the, the shot when um, McDowell's in the car racing through the countryside in Clockwork Orange. Mm, yes, it does. It looks a lot like that, actually. It's exactly like that. So very cool. Um, so they get in there. We get Robin Williams, hmm. right? Yep. And that's cool. Like to me, it's testament to Spielberg and Kubrick and the vision they had that they get people like Chris Rock and Robin Williams to do very small like voice work, really. Yeah. Right. Yeah, to yeah. further the film. Yep. Um, 
I know what that line is. I was going to say that Gigolo Joe says to David. So David wants to get back to his mother. He 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 has this thing. I don't know if we've mentioned this. He has this this thing that if he can become a real boy, like he reads reads Pinocchio, right? And if he can be, he has this this revelation that if he can become a real boy, his mother will love him as much as she loves her own son. Yeah. And it's a very heartbreaking thing because if you think about that, you you look at the subtext, right? And uh, how it applies in, in the real world. And um, Gigolo Joe says to him, he says, David, she loves what you do for her, just like my customers love what I do for them. It's not that she loves you, she loves what you do for her. Right. And it's a really profound line. And I don't think that's necessarily the case here. But again, it's a complicated conversation. But but David's aim is true here, right? That, that purity from the child. But it's... Uh, that line just speaks to a lot of the stuff you've been talking about, right? The 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 nearsighted kind of selfishness of humanity. Yes, and you know that that stuff is. I mean, that's the kind of the thesis of the film in a way. You know, you are. I, I believe in that part. He talks about how you're not a dog, a cat, or a canary. Yes. Uh, you know, you're being replaced by a younger model, or you displease them in some way. It's all these harsh realities. And he says, that, we're suffering for the mistakes they've made. That is the most, for me, that is the most poignant line of that speech. Yeah. Because that is that is the Kubrickian nature of the thing. We are suffering, you know, this creation is suffering because of discoveries we have made. And it's it's unbelievably powerful and really a theme of most of Kubrick's work, if you go back and look. Oh, um, yeah. You know, our thoughts on space, our thoughts on violence, our thoughts on sex. Our thoughts on, uh, you know, politics, you know, we are all suffering because of discoveries we have made. Yeah, and it's absolutely. Very powerful. No, you're right. You're right. Uh, let me try to rip through. So the film moves along and it kind of feels a bit Planet of the Apes, Day After Tomorrow. Um, it does. Right. I think some of the criticism of the film originally was Spielberg really builds pretty well. Yep. And then he gets to the end. And I, I think it's very powerful. Obviously, that's you, why. Obviously, you do as well. And I, yeah. and and I'm I'm not just talking about the one element of the story. I think the whole the whole notion, the whole back end to me is it is aged much better than I think. Yeah, I think originally. Think. Yeah, I think originally it was. It felt like he was trying to figure it out, and it felt like it went on for a while. And again, I don't want to get into too much detail here, but there's a bit of a twist to the thing. Yes, and, and there's a nice little, um, a nice little callback to something. Yes, that's done. That just seems like such a throwaway moment in the film. Mm -hmm. That feels like it's in service to set up tension, but it's really a really great misdirect for a back end thing. Yeah, it's 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 very cool. It's the end is really almost impossible to talk about without giving the film away in some ways. Yeah, for I'll, sure. I'll just say that I think this time watching it, I think I realized. All the callbacks, all the nature, but I think most importantly, it asks the question that I think Philip K. Dick asked a long time ago, which is, if we create these artificial life forms and eventually they gain consciousness, will they dream? Yes. Will they create? Exactly. And that is a that is a gigantic philosophical question. Oh, dude. Yeah. And, and completely fascinating. And uh, yeah, I think... Watching it this time, I was really kind of caught up in that. 
Agreed. And it just, you know, the commentary on blind faith of religion versus the wonder of science. Um, right. There's just, just, there's so much going on. And I, yeah, I don't want to get into the back end too much either. Um, it's beautiful too. It's well shot. It is. And, and not to get into it too much, but uh, yeah, you, you'd known this when I spoke to you about it, but it, it profoundly affected me. The back end of this film uh, really hit me because of a personal situation in my life. Um, right, right, right. Losing my mom, blah, blah, blah. So it, it was a profoundly emotional uh, thing for me, which I didn't anticipate. Yeah. Didn't uh, it's, it's, it's very well done. I mean, it, uh, I was in tears. There you go. So, I mean, it's very well done. And uh, that goes to Haley Joe Osment and Francis O'Connor. The, the, the performances there are just unbelievable. And the camera work, there's it's, there's this warm glow of the sun, much like, you know, when we think of our memories that are kind of soft and sunbathed. Um, it, from a technical perspective, it looks really good. And I got to say this, just to give it sort of a basketball reference. So, you know, Robert Ori, right? The, the great role player for the Houston Rockets, LA Lakers. Yeah. I do. He, he was clutch. His nickname was Big Shot Bob. Yeah. <laughs> he would always come up clutch in the, the, the just three point, crucial three, three point shots. Yes, I do. Yeah. So Teddy is the Big Shot Bob of this one. When he mm. comes up clutch, when he pulls something out of his, yeah. his bag that just money. Yeah. Money, money, money. Yeah. So it's amazing. It's very touching and uh, yeah. very powerful. Yes. It is. It is, and and never mind, you know, like there's some great sort of horrific sequences with some realizations David makes in sort of a lab setting. Like there's just, just there's a lot for this to be reassessed by people over. So I'll kick it over to you, man, because I've been rambling for a while. Well, I mean, I don't have a whole lot more to add because I kind of talked while you were talking, as I tend to do. But um, you know, I think I think what the film, the film is obviously a meditation on grief as well. Yep. And what that does to people's decision making, and how it can affect both right and wrong uh, our decision making, uh, up to and including creating artificial intelligence to fill a void. Um, because there's some stuff there again with the William Hurt character, and I found that stuff fascinating this time around. I've talked about the arrogance of human beings. Um, you know the fact that history kind of repeats itself. That it kind of just. Over and over and over again, we think we have the best intentions. And a lot of times we find that, you know, the most basic intention was the correct uh, intention all along. That that kind of stuff is very powerful. The idea that, you know, artificial intelligence could become, I mean, this is a very poignant conversation right now because a lot of this stuff's kind of going around. But, you know, will artificial intelligence at some point become conscious and will it at some point create the same things we created? Religion, belief systems, values. Um, I know obviously everybody goes to the Terminator thing because that's the easiest thing to think about is robots and violence. But my bigger concern is what happens if AI does become conscious and it starts to create things that like the hard right or the hard left politically we start to follow mm-hmm. and what does that do to humanity in the long run um it's it's it, these are big questions big 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 questions and obviously human beings we're so capable of great things but we're also so capable of making mistakes it's unbelievable 
the, how the two go hand in hand with each other. And you have to wonder what is going to happen. Maybe it won't happen in your and I lifetime. Maybe it won't happen in our kids and maybe it won't even happen in their kids lifetime if they have children. But at some point along the way, this road is definitely going to have some cause and effect to humanity in general. Uh, we all use technology daily. We all use it to do all kinds of things daily. Uh, we, it, I mean, we completely take it for granted at this point. GPS systems, uh, information, uh, buying things, uh, up to and including groceries. I mean, the world is a totally different place than it was 20 years ago when this film was made. Um, I don't think that can be said enough. You think about where the world was 20 years ago when this was made and where it is now. It's kind of unbelievable, the jump in technology. Oh, yeah. It's it's. It's incredible. Yeah. And I mean, I expect those jumps will just keep coming because we just keep getting smarter and smarter and it just, it just, it's not going to go away. And you have to wonder at some point, and I'm not trying to be a negative person here about this, but you do have to wonder because I do think there's benefits to technology. You do have to wonder at some point when is enough enough. And that is when I fear that by then it might be too late. It'll be too late. And that's unfortunately the inevitability of it all is it will be too late because that's our, in our nature, right? That nearsighted impulsiveness. Yeah. It's the, the arrogance of human beings. The, the, yep. the same thing that Kubrick and, you know, had been talking about for years, uh, at least going back to Dr. Strangelove, the, you know, the, 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 the blind arrogance the, that we are the smartest thing on the planet. And mm-hmm. um, we might be. But, of course, the smartest thing on the planet would be the thing that creates something smarter than it. <laughs> that's that's the irony of the whole thing, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, big time. <laughs> it's not just the modern Prometheus. It's not the Frankenstein creature. It's the idea that we'll create a, a complete universe of materials that are smarter than all of us. And could it end up becoming where we become irrelevant? And that's a that's a a crazy question, but not as far fetched no. as I think it was twenty years ago. No, and it's kind of scary. It really is. Uh, anyway, uh, I found this film incredibly emotional to watch this time. I do think the film is a little long. I think it kind of lingers about at times. It's it's definitely in that Spielberg hundred and forty minute range that he loves to work in, and I do think it kind of wears out its welcome in spots. But for the most part. I think this film is very well done. I don't know if it's one of Spielberg's best films. I think it is one of his deepest films. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no doubt about that. This is him really kind of pushing ideas and philosophy and and even his childlike wonder to a different uh, type of paradigm, to a different type of way of thinking. And I think that's what makes it really interesting. You're talking about the arguably the sentimental filmmaker of a generation – coming in and making something both about sentimentality and about anti-sentimentality. And I think that in itself is a pretty fascinating reason to see the film, uh, because this is not what he's known for. Now you could say that he was not very sentimental in Schindler's list. I agree. He was not, uh, he was hardcore in that. And, but he had sentimental moments in that. Certainly. Um, this actually, I think maybe more so than Schindler's list, even criticizes humanity more, than that film did. And that film does definitely criticize humanities as well as, you know, saving private Ryan and Munich, 
which is, again, one of the ones I think that kind of gets overlooked, but it certainly questions the things we do. Um, I think that's fascinating. And, and, and bravo to Spielberg for not resting on his laurels and making the same films over and over and over again. I mean, we've talked about him over the years. You've talked about your relationship with him and stuff. We, we can talk about him forever. Uh, and there's a lot of things he does that don't work for some people. And a lot of things he does that work for people completely. Um, I think probably the most impressive thing about him is that he has always kind of grown. Yeah. Where, and he, he doesn't just do the same thing as his filmography is very diverse. Yeah. And I, it's funny as a, yeah, as a child, you know, we're drawn to him when we're, you know, too tough and too cool. I sneered at him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now even within the life of our show, I've, I've come to really admire and embrace him. Now, is he ever going to be, you know, uh, a Fellini or a Malik for me? No, but I really love and admire him and, um, and his craft. Right. And it's funny that it's kind of come full circle, right? Yeah. It's, uh, I think that's interesting. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I I don't think I could put him in – I don't know if I'd put him in my master filmmaker list, but it's hard no, to argue uh, the fact that he is a a masterful commercial filmmaker. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. But just he's got that touch, that, that magic that very few – filmmakers can can pull off right yeah. he just he's got that caramel secret to make films that are technically well made they're critically and commercially uh, very viable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, they you know they just it's like the the caramel secret from a cinematic perspective just one final thing again about the him is the end is even more poignant from a personal nature thinking about him and his mom but just to yeah, yeah, I haven't seen the Fablemans yet, but I I do know some of that story. Yes, yeah, yeah. So just, so it, you know, I I think yeah, I mean certainly, regardless of your feelings on him, he is a filmmaker of a generation. I mean, absolutely. he he is one of those guys. He changed film. He changed Star, movies. He changed Star. movies completely. Yes, uh, with his assistance. Well, well, how much assistance did he have before I started talking out of my ass? He was uh, more of a consultant with Lucas. No. Uh, yeah, I mean, th- those two guys work together, but I mean, I, you know, but Jaws changed things, right? Jaws changed things, you know, Star Wars changed things, Jaws changed things, Close Encounters, you could argue, changed things. Encounters was, yeah, yeah, e- e, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you could go on and on. And on, oddly, you know, as much as I appreciate Jaws too, but I, oddly, you know, the film I, when I often think about some of Spielberg's masterpieces, I mean, for me, like Raiders of the Lost Ark is like, like, it's like top tier like Spielberg like that's that's almost like a perfect action film in some ways it's pretty damn good yeah and uh, that's him and Lucas working together so I mean you you have this and again he swings and misses sometimes that's that's what I admire about him he does 1941 uh which I think is very good but you know it is a bit of a mess and and you know even his remake of always or always which is remake of another film I find that interesting and and there's there's just things he does certainly that uh, that are interesting always and um, no pun intended by using always again there but uh, I just think you know as time's gone on and he will be remembered I mean there's a reason why again you got Kubrickian you got Malikian you got Spielbergian mm-hmm. there's a reason why you get names Fellini esque you know uh, Leone esque you can't yeah. you know you get these words because these filmmakers make impacts and 
whether he's on my list of master filmmakers or not, which I don't think he is, I'd have to sit down and actually work that out. Um, his impact has been felt for the last 50 years. There's no doubt about that. No, no doubt about that. He's, he changed modern filmmaking. Um, for the better or for worse, that's up for people's uh, own minds to make up. But uh, he has made an impact. And it'll, it'll never go away. It'll never go away. It'll always be there in some it's, level. It's baked into cinematic language yep. and the business of film and just sort of the, the lore of film. Right. This. Right. I mean, even the great filmmakers that are working now, uh, I'm not a huge Christopher Nolan fan, but I can see Spielberg in Christopher Nolan films. Yep. I can see Spielberg in so many filmmakers that are coming up now. So many filmmakers. I can see Spielberg in Paul Thomas Anderson films. Sure. Uh, he's made an impact. I don't know if I see any Spielberg in any Tarantino films. I'm trying to think if I do, but I, I, I bet there is some in there somewhere, but there has to be, he has to have been influenced by that somewhere. Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. I really enjoyed watching this film again. I think it's emotionally, it's, it's pretty raw. It asks a lot of questions. Uh, it's tough. And, um, uh, I really admire that Spielberg and, and, and Warner brothers decided to make this movie. Uh, because uh, it's not easily sellable material. It's definitely a film that only somebody like Steven Spielberg or Stanley Kubrick, uh, somebody really at the top of their game could get made. And uh, I don't think it was a big hit. I don't feel like it made a lot of money. I feel like it may have bombed, as a matter of fact, but I, I'm not 100% positive on that. But, man, I'm so glad it got made. I do, I do really do wish that I could have seen Kubrick's version of this. Of course, but it's Listen. just it's just massive curiosity, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I just I I do wish I would have seen that, but then again, I do wish I would have seen Kubrick's Napoleon film that he worked on for thirty years, yeah. you know, that he never got made. So there's so many things that I do wish for, but I'm happy with what I got. I think we got a really smart and deep film about artificial intelligence and humanity's role within that space. And yeah, it's just some profound stuff, right? Some it's very profound, profound. philosophical, That's- ethical, existential stuff wrapped up and intertwined between two of the greatest filmmakers to have done it. Yeah. It's a gift. That's a gift. And I think if for nothing else than a curio piece, which I think just to say it's a curio piece does it a, a disservice. But if for nothing else, I think people should check it out to see the the Kubrickian or the Spielbergian stuff on the, the the spectrum of them as filmmakers and how that that's woven together, which is an interesting thing and is done pretty darn well, I think. Oh, I agree. And profound is the best word. It really is the best word. That's one of those movies where after it's over, I'm sitting there going, "Huh," <clears throat> you know. Then it really gets the brain cooking. Really does. Uh, that's all I really got. I'm glad we rewatched it. I'm glad we covered it on here. To be honest with you, uh, let's get a make or breaks MVTs. What you got, man? My make or break. There's so many scenes I could go with. Obviously, the most emotionally resonant scene was the finale for me. But um, I, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna pick that scene as much as it's, it's the easy, obvious choice for me. Like I said, I was just crying pretty hard at it uh, for personal reasons. But um, I, would, I just want to go with the, 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 um, the flesh fair sequence, like the whole. Um, when he meets Jude, when he meets like Gigolo Joe and there's all the other uh, androids and they're looking for spare parts and, and it gets to the flesh fair and Gleason's great in that little turn. I, I really love that, uh, that sequence. There's a lot of sequences I love, but I really love that one. Um, 
MVT, I'm going to go. I was initially just going to go with Osmond because his performance is an all-time child performance. But I think I would be doing Spielberg a disservice. So I'm going to go with the Osmond-Spielberg collaboration. I just think it's um, mm. it's note perfect. It's the Both of them allowed the other to bring out the best in, in their sensibilities as, as artists or as, as creators, or whatever you want to say. Uh, I really love that collaboration. Um, my score for this, I don't know, it, it might feel a bit high, but I, I just found myself for a few days afterwards thinking about this film, talking to you about it again. I always love quest- films that I ask big questions and, and kind of force us to bring our stuff to the table as far as the answers or maybe looking for answers. And this film did that for me. Uh, I'm going to go 8.75 out of 10. I nice. Really, really enjoyed this. I'm glad that we've reviewed it. I'm glad that it's been rewatched and it doesn't just, because to me, it probably was about a seven, maybe a seven and a half, maybe uh, if I just went off memory as a 20, 21 year old. So I'm glad it was revisited and looked at through different eyes. Nice, nice. Didn't expect that high a score. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, sure. Uh, my MV or my make or break. I'm going to go with the again. It's for me. It's the rawest scene in the movie, but it's the abandonment scene. It really just hits you like oh. a ton of bricks. I mean, it's like, ugh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's 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 rough. I mean, it's so rough that I almost thought about fast forwarding through it, watching it this time. Oh. And Osmond <laughs> so. Like he's his his he's so scared and so desperate. Oh my god, dude! He doesn't know what he's done wrong, and it, it is a, a heartbreaking moment. Oh and my it's god, just played very well. Oh, it's so hard. It's it's so tough. It hurts so bad, and I just uh, I have such a hard time with it. I really do. And again, like I said, I almost thought about. I'm just going to fast forward through this <laughs> because <laughs> it left a mark the last time, and it's going to leave another mark. And I don't I don't want to deal with it. But I watched it, and I was like, ugh. Just made me feel so bad, but it was powerful, very powerful, and uh, really good filmmaking and acting from everybody involved. Uh, my MVT, I agree with you. It could be the collaboration, but you know what? I, I could. Get, this goes into that world that we talk about sometimes. I know I could give it to Spielberg again. Like for me, there's no doubt in my mind that if we did Jaws, Steven Spielberg is the MVT. There's yeah. no doubt in my mind that if we did. Uh, probably Raiders, I would say Steven Spielberg's the MVT because it's just, it's amazing to me. But here, I know I can only ever possibly give Haley Joe Osment the MVT one other time. Probably. Yeah. And even in that regard, I don't know if he's the MVT of that film. That might be Shyamalan himself, you know? So I, yeah, yeah. it's, it's really, it's really tough. So I'm just going to go ahead and give it to Osment here because I agree with you. This is a great child performance this is not a good child performance this is like like if i had to say top 10 child performances this one is in there 100 percent. and you know what man i'm gonna change mine no hate for spielberg yeah all love for osmond osmond gets all the flowers yeah both he really is so good in this movie so good man yeah and so overlooked as a child actor with this film i don't I, i he he nails the the kind of uniform banality of the android but yeah. he also nails the humanity piece oh, and, and, and the discovery and yeah it's it's and amazing 
Shin, the, oh, God, he's so good. It's just such an, un, like, how do people not think, you know, we talk about, like, 400 Blows and all these other films, the great child performances. This really should be mentioned as one of the all-time child performances. Yeah, There's been a lot of kid performances films, a lot of shitty ones. Yeah. This is an all-timer. Yeah, I mean, this is this one for me would easily probably be in the top 10. I think of child performances I really like, Jackie Earl Haley and Bad News Bears. and yes. Uh, so many, even Tatum O'Neill and Bad News Bears. Jesus, I mean that movie's full of great child performances. But man, I think about all the great child performances in history, and this one is never talked about. And I guess because nope. it's newer, but it's twenty years old now, and I think people should go back and look at it. And for me, Haley Joe Osment, like Macaulay Culkin, will always have a place in movie history because I think this is he had the one-two punch of two of the arguably greatest child performances of all time. Yeah. Hundred percent, and all those other ones you mentioned, I agree with you completely. But the nuance and the complexities of this performance really yes. uh, rise it above. It's up there, no doubt. Uh, my score is just a little bit lower than yours. It's eight point five. I was I was just surprised because I thought I was going to be the highest scorer on this one. <laughs> so, wow! Who would have thought we'd see the day where I score a Spielberg <laughs> film higher than you? Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, you know, that when you said eight point seven five, I was like, whoa, whoa! I expected. Maybe at best an eight. Oh, really? You know what, man? I was worried that I was, you know, because we try not to be too emotional in our reviews or our, our like our scores. But I was like, am I shooting too high here because that end got me so good, or or is it really that good? And I was like, I felt pretty good about it, but I'm glad you're close because it means that I was honest with myself with my score. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think we're right in the, you know, obviously 0.25 isn't, and that's about where we fall typically when we both like something. (laughs) So it's right in there. So, uh, yeah. Uh, So check it out, folks. If you get a chance, if you've only seen AI once and maybe you were let down or maybe you were blown away, check it out again. I think it's worth a second watch. So uh, that's it for the big show. We want to thank everybody for listening. It's a long one this week, uh, but a lot to talk about, a lot to catch up on. Will and I have been away from each other for two weeks. So, Next week, uh, what are we doing, Will? What are we doing? You get your pick next week. Yeah, so we're going to. Uh, it's going to be. We're going to continue the the unintentional, inadvertent theme of doomed, tragic youth. A little, a little older, thankfully, considering the subject matter. Yes, a little older. <laughs> this was spurred by us talking about Matt Dillon in a this or that segment. We're both fans of Matt Dillon. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't, th- I think we had settled on the fact that we had never done a Gus Van Sant. We both like his work. So it felt like no uh, pun intended, yeah. high time. Yeah. I don't think we've ever done a Gus Van Sant film. I think this was the first one. Yeah. It felt like high time to do some Dylan, some Van Sant and do drugstore cowboy. So nice. Nice. Looking forward to this. This is also a film I've only ever seen once. And I think you've yeah, never yeah. seen, right? Go, man. You had never Go. seen it, right? It's going to be fun to talk about. Yeah. It'll be a blast. Uh, well, uh, it'll be a blast to talk about it. Uh, you know, it's not exactly, anyway, we'll get to that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, check out everybody else that uh, makes podcasts that are tight with us. Watch get plus, not a bomb. Chin stroker versus punter. See here. The love them married with quickers. Yeah. So many Raiders. Of the last, yeah. Uh, podcast. Yeah. Oh, uh, there's so many, so many, uh, but check them all out. Uh, they're all great. And uh, we want to thank everybody for listening. And I will say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. 